The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. now join out now with Aaron and Abe already in progress we are now recording and this is out now with Aaron and Abe I am Aaron and Abe is unfortunately not here he's working he's got so much work it's just it's sad because it'd be fun to have on some of the commentary tracks so this is out now with Aaron and Abe it is a film podcast Abe and I normally discuss new movies weekly however Every now and then, I have to do these special bonus episodes where it's one of our fun commentary tracks or something completely different. And this is one of our fun commentary tracks. This is episode, this is our commentary track for, what is it, September, September 2020. And yes, we are talking David Fincher's Seven this month, celebrating its 25th anniversary. And there's a David Fincher movie actually coming out sometime soon, which is a nice thing to say for the first time in six years. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Seven all about it. it's going to be a lot of fun and we have a number of guests with us because everyone's really excited to talk about our favorite character actor that's right kevin john c mcginley um okay so let's get to it our guest tonight four seven we have host of the brandon peters show he he can't just tap people on the shoulder anymore he has to hit them with sledgehammer it's brandon peters i'm not going to be the person to say the the line so i'm not going to say it not I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask the question. Not me. Also joining us from the Milky Way Blues, he believes the world is worth fighting for. It's Yancey Burns. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Yancey's not going to say it either. Also joining us from Why So Blue, I guess he may or may not be sitting around reading guns and ammo while masturbating in his own feces. It's Peter Paris. How did you know? <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? And lastly, joining us from Forbes, he really wants to know, what's in the box? It's oh, Scott Aaron <laughs> went there. Is courage. <laughs> <laughs> what was in the box was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I brought and a box, lunch. guys. I brought a box. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. How are all of you doing this evening? As Excellent. well as can be expected. This is going to yeah. be a good one. There all are, but this is going to be a good one, too. Good. Nice, upbeat, heartwarming, <laughs> epithetic picture to celebrate these grim times. We're, we're knocking out 2020 with a lot of themed episodes here, that's for sure. We had a lot of, a lot of fun to come we're talking about seven. Uh, but yeah, no, happy to have you all here. All, <laughs> all of you are here. We have a full house talking about seven for this commentary track. I will explain that in a second, but I do want to note, I, this is an out now commentary. That said, some of you might be listening on the from the Brandon Peters show. That's right. We are, we are co- habitating this these commentaries to get them out to more people so you might be hearing it on my show or you might be hearing it out now either way thanks for listening yeah and we're uh, we're actually looking at each other for a slight change of pace we're yeah. seeing how that goes this time around I, i'm already getting sick of it but we'll you know we'll see we'll see what happens <laughs> well we're all gonna be looking like like eye above each other watching <laughs> our screens I'm Unless someone's gonna, got a little window and like watching seven in a little window. Which... I'm I'm only going to stare at Peter while watching this movie. So we'll get to that. Um, all right. What we're going to do here. We're doing a seven commentary track. That means all five of us have the movie seven currently paused at five seconds in. 
And we should have seven seconds. What the hell were we thinking? Yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> we'll do it for the next Bond. We never do that for Bond movies either. And we've done like oh, yeah. eight Bond commentaries. Oh, oh see. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we have it paused at five. We're doing the prequel. That's what we're doing. Uh, and we're leaving room for a sequel to that prequel. So we'll have six next time. But so- we're going to talk about seven. We have it paused at five seconds. And on the sound of go, we're all going to press play and start talking over the movie. So if you plan on watching seven with us, do get the movie paused right there and do all that and you're fine if you if you're just listening to listen good on you here you are you're listening i mean you've you've already won basically because this is going to be a lot of gold um yeah so i think we're all good you guys ready yep all right all right three two one go new line the house that freddie built (laughs) But, you know, I, I was going to ask that. It's the house that Freddie built, but was New Line Nick Cassavetes before that? It was just an acquisition studio. Yeah. Primarily. They were just buying up. So they may have shown some of his films, but they were just buying up stuff. And then they made a movie called uh, Alone in the Dark. It was one of their first ones uh, with Jack Shoulder, who would later do The Hidden and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 for them. Um, Alone in the Dark with Donald Pleasance and Jack Palance. Real cool movie. Um, but... Freddie was their big, like they scraped together all their funds, blood, sweat, tears, relationships were ended, families were broken apart and became their big hit. And And cemented this as a genre studio for the most part, right? Kind of, yeah. A lot of interesting stuff. Was there anything before Lord of the Rings that was like considered somewhat prestige for New Line? Uh, Prestige might be pushing it, but I would argue that Frankly, seven. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, brave reviews. Hey, I mean, they had uh, Rush Hour. That was yeah, hits for them. They were perhaps by virtue of being a scrappy underdog studio, even when they were you know bought by Time Warner. I would argue they had their pulse on the zeitgeist, especially the youth zeitgeist, more so than some of their rivals. Um, especially when it came to genre films like. Uh, you know, Ninja Turtles and uh, The Mask and things of that. Blade, for example. Yeah. You know, we were somewhat ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, pop culture. So talking about this movie, right away, you're thrown in, you got Morgan Freeman. And you already get a sense of who this guy is. He is world weary. He's tired. He's out of it. <clears throat> and then you get Brad Pitt literally running right into the movie to be like, I'm the new guy. So <laughs> at this point, Morgan Freeman, does he have, he doesn't have an Oscar nomination yet, does he? I think he had just gotten one for it was about to no, get right, one he, for, had, he, had, uh, he had driving Miss Daisy he had, drive, yeah. he had driving Miss Daisy also yep yes okay, uh, so, so he's already yeah, he got he, a, we know he has a level of prestige attached to him already he's in a lot of he's, he's got Eastwood films he's got the prestige movies and stuff this like, is after uh, he, he did get a nomination for Shawshank I believe yeah there we go okay oh, that's, right, the, right, that's right. the one I was trying to think of the other there's like I know there's like a, a few before that so, yes he is a name. He's not necessarily a butts in the seats name, but he's somebody that is respected and has a certain gravitas and prestige. And as such, yes, pairing him with a hot young and up and coming star like Brad Pitt in a movie like this was even then considered a smart commercial play. I like to think this actually elevated him to that for like a little bit because he had yeah. like Kiss the Girls and Along Came a Spider, which yes. is like Morgan Freeman is. Mm-hmm. Don't cross Alex Cross in. <laughs> So he had that going, which are just which were just knockoffs of this movie, which we will talk about as far as the yeah, influence this had. Yeah, th- uh, this movie, I I was, it was really interesting to me. Like you're talking about like Pitt and stuff in there. 
I before this, Brad Pitt just seemed like this like pretty face guy in this movie, and Gwyneth Paltrow was someone who I just at the time wasn't. I was like 13 when this came out, so I wasn't interested in what Gwyneth Paltrow was doing. But I saw this movie, and it like elevated my interest in them and respect for them because people like that didn't do movies like this back then. Like it was really? to me, it was like it was huge. I'm like, whoa, Brad Pitt, and then he had you know 12 Monkeys was around this same time. So I, was, I got really on the Brad Pitt train and Gwyneth Paltrow, like I wanted to see stuff she was in. I'm like, wow, these people do pick interesting movies. It really shine a light because Pitt had what, like Legends of the Fall before this. And just, I was like, he just like somebody the girls talked about and didn't seem like much. And then I saw this and it really, you know, it was part of my growing up and just not turning my nose up to things um, because of players. And it really helped, you know, transition me to that. Plus, uh, like the opening credits um, uses nine inch nails. And I never, I was like, what? That was, it was crazy to me that a director was using some band that I listened to that was like stupid kid music and it wasn't a teen movie. It was an adult movie using nine inch nails. I was so out, like, I'm so not a, not against nine inch nails, but I'm so not like into that, like, you know, industrial metal that mm-hmm. I, like I didn't recognize the fact that it was, cause it's a remix. I didn't recognize that yep. it was closer for like years later, as far as like, Oh, I do know what this song is. <laughs> Probably also yeah. because I'm looking at these very specific details that we're getting in this opening credit sequence. Yeah. yeah. This, I mean, this is also Andrew Kevin Walker. Um, who you talked about before. We, when we talk yeah. about Sleepy Hollow, you've got into right. your, how interested you've been in Andrew Kevin Walker. I was. I was like, I'll, I mean, when 8mm was coming, I was like, oh, it's the new Andrew Kevin Walker movie. <laughs> like that was that was how I saw. That's like that's what you said when you marched up to the to the ticket booth, too. You said one for the new Andrew Kevin Walker movie, please. <laughs> yes, the flicky pictures that Andrew Kevin Walker wrote. Uh, Which one is that? The one with to die for is Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, right. Like I went back and watched like Hideaway that he did with like Alicia Silverstone and Jeff Goldblum because I'm like, oh, he did that. Why well, now? I need to check it out. Um, but yeah, and he's been like a. Big, yeah, we talked about the Sleepy Hollow one, but like big ghostwriter in Hollywood too. Like his name's not on a lot of stuff, but he's touched it. Peter, when was the first time you saw Seven? Wait, what? <laughs> when was the first time you saw Seven? <laughs> oh, me? Uh, yeah, I you. Saw- hi. <laughs> Peter's no. simulating listening to the commentary. I'm sorry, I'm watching. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, Darius, you're watching the um, credits. <laughs> um, I no, I saw it opening weekend because I'm a, a million years old, so. Uh, Yancey, did you also? See, I saw it in theaters. Did you see it in theaters, Yancey? I saw I saw this opening night as well, and I distinctly remember how startling it was. the The opening credits, the closing credits, which run backwards, the whole movie. Oh, yes, is, strike, is sort of strikingly graphic. Not I don't mean in, I mean it is, but it's, it's strikingly graphic and in your face in, in a way an atmospheric that way. Yeah, weren't at that moment, so it was very striking. It felt like. Fincher had finally arrived, and uh, it just felt striking and synergistic in terms of a certain revelation that happens later. But I, uh, I saw the trailer in theaters. I'll tell you that, man, it was a good trailer. <laughs> I've seen, and I, I, I was like, this premise sounds really crazy to me. Nineteen ninety-five, eight-year-old, nine-year-old Aaron, and um, so when I eventually saw the movie on VHS. I was certainly into the movie because <laughs> it was like, yeah, this delivers yeah. on this very creepy premise of a man killing based off these things or having people killed based off these things. He doesn't directly kill anybody, I guess. Um, so that I was, which is, 
it's it's I've seen I mean I've seen this movie plenty of times. It's one like most of Fincher's movies. I've kind of like I didn't even have to prep for this commentary. I have this movie in my head. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> I, it's been a few years since I've watched it at this point. But yeah, it's not it's not one that fades really as far as yeah. what's going on here. I will say it's funny. This movie comes in uh, on the heels of like uh, Hollywood trying to repeat Silence of the Lambs a lot. Like this movie, without Silence of the Lambs, this movie doesn't happen. And then this movie becomes that next Silence of the Lambs that begins chasing this visual, mainly visually, uh, but all the stuff that tries to go for this look that Fincher has for the film. Like it, it's, it has a strong, maybe even a stronger influence over what came after it than visually Silence. for sure. Not that that's not to put down Tag Fujimoto on Silence yeah. of the Lambs it's a right. one, it's a wonderful movie but i mean as far as very stark imagery that's you know very that's heightened i mean that movie's not necessarily heightened More like this is right. yeah. Yeah. this one's very much specifically trying to do that i mean this doesn't yeah. take this doesn't take this doesn't take place in a specific city it's always raining and it's probably LA like it doesn't make any sense as far as like what the, well, i don't think it's LA i think that's I thought it was Seattle or something I think it's shot in LA. I mean, there's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, it's indeterminate. It's though. deliberately not named. It's deliberately yeah. a, a, ambiguous what city it's supposed it to be. It ain't so, Cleveland, which lends it a very, a slightly pulpy quality, I think. Uh, okay. It's really to be a graphic novel you might have read in the late 80s. For sure. Well, yeah. I, tend to, I, I tend to like the indeterminate stuff. Now is the time to bring up that this was the first big film in America of Darius Kanji, the cinematographer. Yes. Mm-hmm. I became a huge cinematography nerd the year before this because they released a documentary called Visions of Light. It's one of the greatest movies about movies ever. It's a documentary about just the art of cinematography and how you can sort of nerd out on just the cinematographers alone. And Darius Kanji here was the first sort of big debut of a major cinematographer after I became aware of, of how important cinematography was. And he... he um, he was already working with uh, with uh, Genet, with Jean-Pierre Genet, with Del Gatessin and City of the Lost Children this the same year, and then yeah, he gets hired on for seven and like starts. What is I feel like he's like the first guy in a certain wave of, of of cinematographers that includes Emmanuel Lubezki and a few other guys, where there was a real sort of yeah, this this doesn't look like Tak Fujimoto and Silence of the Lambs. We were importing. Like- this is kind of a cross between it looks like a cross between a film noir and then like a 70s gordon willis look it's yeah yeah um, in relation to what brandon said you're he's you're correct in that it was a film that was not you know who was inspired by the success of silence and lambs but did its own thing yeah in the same way that you know all of the ya fantasy franchises that failed after harry potter the one that really broke out was that was Twilight, which really had nothing to do with Harry Potter. The same way that you know Hunger Games had nothing to do with Twilight, and so forth and so forth. You know, it's a, it's a good example of even if you're trying to commercially replicate a prior success, it's a film that a stands on its own, b really does its own thing. You know, at worst, it's a companion piece. Uh, I think Silence of the Lambs is more of a, for lack of a better term, almost like a fairy tale. You know, a very dark, okay. you know, a gr- yeah. a gritty fairy mm-hmm. tale. Um, this is, a, you know, you're right. It's more of a, a pulpy film noir. It's very timeless. Um, you know, it happened to come out just before, you know, internet culture and even cell phone culture became popularized. Um, it's the one thing it has above, like, The Matrix, where you have the flip yes. phones and everything that's very mm-hmm. specific to a time period, even though that movie's um, similarly ambiguous as far as the city it's supposed to be in and whatnot. And I, I saw this opening, the Saturday of opening weekend, I saw it in a double feature with Clockers, 
um, both of which have fantastic opening credit sequences. Uh, yeah, yeah. And leave you feeling happy exiting. <laughs> Very, absolutely. Oh. Honestly, I mean, in terms the, the of, opening of Clockers is more graphic than anything in seven, I think, as yeah, far as the way yes. they, the way they examine a dead body little. and everything. It's just, yeah. yeah. In the way, not unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this is a film that feels a lot more violent and gruesome and graphic than it actually is. It's actually very, I don't want to say restrained, but let me say careful in terms of what it does and doesn't show you on screen. Well, yeah, we're seeing it's very good at suggesting more than you're actually seeing. Well, Which all is, you see is the aftermath. Yeah, like you, you see don't the see the actual violence happening. You know, yeah, with one very obvious exception, there's only one on-screen murder in the entire film. Which is why, I mean, we we can lump it and we seems like we get to this all the time but we like we could we could lump the saw franchise into torture porn and like the the late the other sequels they're certainly more graphic but the first saw very much owes everything to seven as far as what yeah. it's doing everything yes. you see you're not it, seeing it, much it of that a, movie it was a new it was it was a new a new vision of griminess mm-hmm. that we hadn't seen before it's like a slick griminess in that you feel it but it's also a well-produced well-made movie so it doesn't you know it's it's still pleasurable to sort of see it but um uh, yeah, interesting. It's an interesting uh, point. In, in well, in, and to go back to bringing up Nine Inch Nails, this is also the same era where, because Nine Inch Nails is very big in this time, you have Mark Romanek's um, closer, closer video, music video, which does the same thing. Where it's mm-hmm. like it's like what was jokingly called like designer cockroach, where it's like it is <laughs> it go. is it, it's an aesthetic that is very beautiful, even though it's dirty and stuff. So yeah, I would say, and seven to me feels like the culmination. Of that. The, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre feels like you've fallen right. into reverse of right. This what? feels like a, a, a Hollywood movie that is presenting a certain spin on grime that is appealing. In certain senses, because it's not. Right. Even, I wouldn't say this is a depressing movie. It actually feels more. The, the feel of it is traditionally. It feels like a horror movie. It looks and feels like a horror movie, even though mm-hmm. there aren't really. It has you know, a horror aesthetic for sure, and it's combining that with this kind of you know pulpy buddy, not buddy, but cop 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 drama thing. So like it's more it's more accessible for a general audience than a, you know a, a standard horror movie. As far as say we can add, like the the notion of prestige can come to it inherently because it's not just. Nothing, you know, nothing for teens. What? Because nothing looked or felt like this movie in this genre at the time. I'm thinking of like presumed innocence and movies that had come out. Uh, in years. Yes, and the co- copycat I think came out shortly after this. Yeah, it was a little yes. after. And that's yeah. a more. Con- and I like it a lot. Hey, Reggie Kathy. <laughs> oh, jeez. R.I.P. Reggie Kathy. <laughs> the reason I think the first half of Fantastic Four is actually good. <laughs> uh, curse you, Reggie. Um, but no, uh, I like copycat a lot. That's for another conversation. But that is a far more conventional picture when you think of a Hollywood serial killer thriller slash riff on Silence of the Lambs. It's also, again, ironically, a more graphically violent film. With a prestige uh, star, I know less, too. Yes, yes. Um, and its own shocking moments, too. It's actually, yeah. I mean, two prestige stars, Holly Hunter won the Oscar for... Yes. The, uh, the piano she had won it two years earlier. Uh, and, you know, I, I, honestly, that's my favorite Holly Hunter performance in copycat. Um, wow, it's got news the piano just striking me with these things sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Scott, I'm assuming you know this. I, I know that seven was a hit. Did it make like 90 million? How much did it make? It did about a hundred domestic from a 13 and change opening weekend, so it played for a while. 
it broke my heart. Was. It broke my heart at second weekend. Um, Halloween, <laughs> the curse of Michael Myers was topped by the second weekend of seven at the box office. The long awaited return of Michael Myers um, <laughs> with the feature film debut of Paul Rudd. Paul Stephen Rudd, um, the final performance of Donald Pleasance, all yeah. shattered because of this. All. <laughs> um, yeah, this one did. I think I'm three twenty-seven worldwide. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah three twenty-seven on like a thirty million dollar budget. It was huge. Um, Halloween six and fourteen, especially for New Line. <laughs> Big year I mean, for New Line. Prior to Lord of the Rings films, yeah. Um, prior to the Lord of the Rings films, their biggest films were The Mask. This and the first couple of Rush Hour films. It's it's um, wild. Yeah. This, this, this made a ton of money, and it's coming out. I mean, Fincher's he's like hurting still from Alien Three because of all that experience, and he's like, I don't want to mm. do this, but like the script is too good, so I guess I'm going to do this, and it becomes a it like doubles the amount of the Alien Three made, and so it, yeah. puts, well, it puts him in a good position as far as being a director that had a miserable experience one time and then has this critically acclaimed box office hit the next time. So it kind of like, we almost didn't have David Fincher like that. Cl- yeah. I don't think people realized we almost didn't. Yeah, have it was David like, Fincher. fuck that. Let me do, I'll do commercials. I'll do music videos and whatever, but like movies, no thing. He was just waiting. The, the fact that Alien three wasn't a major thing was a surprise because he was waiting to, to happen. He'd mm-hmm. done so many great Madonna videos He's on the Madonna train with all those music. Videos. This just felt like, Oh, that's David Fincher. The, the alien, which, in retrospect, it's, not, it's, it's you know it's an interesting movie, Alien Three. We have a whole commentary on Alien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, like it's very much him. Granted, he, yeah. he had his strength. They didn't know what they wanted from that movie. Obviously, we've, right. we've done two David Fincher movies on this podcast, and what is Alien Three? <laughs> That's for this commentary. That I can very easily imagine. Not- in three years, the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an exact match, but for me, this reminds me of Rian Johnson's experiences with he makes the last jedi which is very much a a rian johnson picture and it proves very divisive for better or worse we're not going to get into that and then he goes and makes an original studio program or knives out that is very much this you know very much the same style very much the same ideas and once detached from that franchise and detached from the expectations of that franchise it is a critically acclaimed super smash and you get zero of the hand wringing and you know controversy or whatever that greeted the Star Wars film because it's not a franchise picture. That said, I mean, but this, Star Wars last year was critically acclaimed. Oh match. yeah, yeah, it's not exact match. <laughs> it's just no, it made one point three billion dollars. That much. Um, the the Alien Three is more nihilistic than this movie. Is what I'm <laughs> yes. Wait, so just um, curious, I'm just curious. Um, just wanted to ask um, Richard Roundtree on what, the screen. What I would, Wait, what? Richard, Richard Roundtree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got Richard Roundtree. You so got, good. You got a lot of good. Arlie like, Ermey. Arlie Ermey, yeah. It's like a straight-laced Arlie Ermey. It's an inspired <laughs> cast. Like, it's got good decisions in, like, odd picks, like, killing for, it in different places. So, for what I feel is, like, the first kind of era of, like, David Fincher, I'd say probably from... Um, Alien 3 to Panic Room. I'd say all the movies in between. Nah, it'd be this to Fight Club. I think Panic Room's where he like starts really ushering. Even Fight Club's a stretch. Like I think Panic Room's kind of like a bridge. It does yeah. like because he's he's he's, ex- he's experimenting with his camera in Fight Club as far as like I can put it through the trash can and stuff. And then Panic Room is all of that. Like, yeah. Uh, what are you sorry, Peter? What are you keep going? <laughs> well, 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 no, no, that's true. I guess, but I was just gonna say like um, of this era, I guess of Fincher. It, just asking everyone, like for me. I feel like this is probably my favorite Fincher, although I do love the game a lot. 
Um, but I, I was just kind of curious what you guys, is this, or are you guys going to say Fight Club? Uh, Zodiac or Fight Club? It's Zodiac well, and Fight. Zodiac, I mean, Fight like, Zodiac best picture, I think. But I, uh, that's not of this period. Of his yeah, early Zodiac period, wouldn't count. Like, that's not this era. Like, the game. I love the game because I love Michael Douglas. Uh, if, fully, they feel like the same guy. If you're know. speaking of this era specifically, then yes, Fight Club. If we're putting Fight Club, Fight Club, then yeah. Fight Club would be my Fight choice Club. here. I think the break is before Zodiac, isn't it? Because that's when he, I think he matures into. Yeah, I, well, think, I, I think there's, I think there's, th- there's multiple distinct periods. I, I think the, perhaps. I think Fight Club is is the end of this first period. Then I think you get to what you get: Panic Room, and is it Benjamin Buttons after that? No, no, then, Zodiac. 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 Zodiac first, then Benjamin Button. I think yeah, that's yeah. its own thing. Zodiac, and then, Benjamin Button. Zodiac. And then, and then you get to his like trashy airport phase. I guess yeah. you, get, <laughs> you get girl with the dragon tattoo and uh, gone girl. Gone girl. Yeah. And then like rip like House of Cards. Even like I mean, there's things factor in. And then Mank is. We'll see what Mank is. I guess. But I, I mean, my, I mean, for me, this and uh, Zodiac. I think the same kind of movie. I think. Zodiac, he's the filmmaker he was born to be. I think at this point he's still slightly more stylistic. He can't overcome certain elements of the script that are a little bit um, self-serious, I think, in this in this movie. I think it's a little, when it gets into the seven, who, who cares about the seven deadly sins except Billy Batson? I never, no one cares about the seven deadly sins, right? So when the movie starts to get a little self-serious about that and Sanctimonious, he doesn't quite overcome that. But I think he's got slightly stronger material with Zodiac, but anyway. Well, I, think, I mean, I think Zodiac taps into things he feels. Like, if you want to, like, talk to David Fincher about, like, things that are part of who he is as a person, Fight Club maybe does that, but I still think that's more of, like, a it's more of an F you to people and society in various ways than it is as far as speaking to who he is as a person. Where Zodiac, I mean, he grew up in that area, right? Like, he, like these are things that, that like, matter mm-hmm. to him to some degree, let alone... Or director ev- for fire here. Let, I mean, alone, we yeah, got- let alone an evolution filmmaker. I mean, we got Brahma, we have seven, then he comes back, you know, like maybe a decade later, we got Zodiac, and then a decade later, we got Mindhunter. That's kind of where his brain's at and exploring it in different avenues. Like one was his first, then he had a prestigious turn on it, and now he explored it in episodic serialized form. But those are kind of the mind of the serial killer and the way he tells an exploratory story. That seems to be something he taps back into. You can map, I mean, this is a little loose, you can map it a little bit to Tarantino where he's making films just to be cool for, to really pare it down with the first few. Um, Jackie Brown is like, I just really like Elmore Leonard and I want to do my own take on that. He does that, which feels something like, (laughs) it can work. And then when you get to something like Inglorious Bastards, that feels like I'm doing this now. I'm I'm, I'm really putting a certain kind of effort into it that speaks to a a different part of who I am and then, you know, has the matched prestige to go with it where he's gotten like after the kill bills, he's gotten all the kind of how, how big can I make this out of my system? And then let me go to something else. Make a is different kind of direction. Like is, is he's, he's obviously, if not the best, one of the best working, working directors out there. He sort of resists the, the, the traditional auteur thing of having, I think of having themes that are controlling. I feel like he sort of is a little bit more, do you guys agree with me at all? He's a little bit more uh, sort of genius for hire than uh, I don't know, idea guy or or sort of thematic. Well, guy. he doesn't write. He doesn't write. I mean, if he, I'm sure he has yeah. a hand in the screenplays to some degree, but yeah, he's not a you know he's not a writer on his projects. But at the same time, he he's very selective. Like he's choosing these things for a reason, 
even with something as loose i don't know actually when i say that out loud because i think of like panic room he's just like i wanted to make the best b movie of all time like that's literally his quote on panic room <laughs> girl with the dragon tattoo i don't really know what that is beyond well the swedes really like me so i guess i'll do them a you know a favor back i don't i don't know what the line was on on that one because that just that, that seems like such an obvious pick as far as i guess they dragon made a movie that feels like the... me <laughs> Dragon Tattoo could go with the seven Zodiac Mine Hunter yeah, type the, thing. I don't think of that as like he just stepped in. Well, I, feels I don't like think Al- of his his too much, you know. It feels like Alice in Wonderland to me, where it's like you got the most obvious guy to do this thing, and it and it <laughs> right. feels, and it feels like the very obvious pick that doesn't ultimately mean as much compared to some of his other movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember I Powers as opposed to Tim Burton in Alice in Wonderland. I think Fincher. It's the top of his power. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a better movie. I mean, for I default. I mean, I okay. I remember I got into a conversation. Um, I feel like sometime in the early two thousands, uh, when we're uh, probably right around when I met Yancey uh, with a, a friend of mine, when we were talking about what we think are auteurs versus just. Well, I shouldn't say just because it's not a bad thing, but filmmakers who have a style and are, are obviously really in, intelligent and sophisticated, but maybe that's what Yancey's saying with, you're not pointing out the themes. So at the time, the conversation was, my friend was like, he kind of felt that David Fincher was somebody who very much you could tell his movies by the sense of style, but his movies could be different subject matters, as opposed to Wes Anderson, who also has a certain style, but he seems very interested in kind of the same Thing to a degree. Remember, this is 2000, so he hadn't gotten to Grand Budapest Hotel. So, is that what you're saying? Is that kind of what you guys are saying? And I can kind of see that because it's oh, true. Yeah. I don't know if I would say a David Fincher movie, like a Scorsese movie, I'd be like, oh, he's kind of usually dealing with Catholic guilt. He's dealing with like redemption. Yeah, I don't know if I see he that. The point is, he doesn't have to be. And there's so many great directors from the first 60, 70 years of filmmaking who are great directors because they made great movies, not because they had this thematic thing that would dog them. Right. Michael Curtis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so, I think I, if you're going to talk specifically about, like, themes in relation to auteur, no, I don't think there's a specific... I mean, you can draw some through lines, I'm sure. There's some obvious ones. But, I mean, I, <laughs> compared to someone like Burton or Wes Anderson, you can look at frames from those movies and be like, that's right. definitely that person. Right. But because so many people want to ape Fincher, it's hard to... I if you, You'd be hard-pressed sometimes to be like, Wait, is that a Fincher movie? Like, that's not exactly. He's, he, he's kind of easier to ape. I think the only person that uh, like comes close to like a Tim Burton, and you can tell the difference is uh, uh, is it Barry Sonnefeld? He's kind of yeah. Barry Burton-esque. Yeah. Or, or um, Henry Selick, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but but you can still tell it's not Burton. But there's a lot like Fincher's look was easily replicated. Sonnefeld, I could think like Raimi. You could like, like tie them together. Came from the, the again was a cinematographer, right? Came yeah, it's that it's they're in the Coens, like it's all that. That's all that's their family thing. Yeah, I know. Like, I know what you're saying though, Fincher. Like, I understand because the because the work comes from various places. It's not coming from like you know. It's a Kubrickian thing almost to just want to do perfect movies that aren't one and one of each. You know, sure. Yeah, because he's I like I wouldn't necessarily call either of them journeyman filmmakers, but they certainly like they're masters. They, they certainly yeah they've they've explored they've explored different genres to a point. Actually, that's interesting because I mean I guess in a way the Coen brothers are kind of like that. They they have some projects like Serious Man that I feel are very specific to probably their own upbringing and everything. But you're right, they their movies are also 
insanely <laughs> well made, but I don't necessarily know if I see themes and well, stuff. They, well, they, I mean, they tend to have can... a theme of a, a common person drug in, like it's a Hitchcock oh, thing, where the common person drug and, into a their, their theme is idiots. That's the easiest way to put it. They're <laughs> idiots. idiots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like there and theirs is their pattern is so easy because it's one for us, one for the studio. Like that's that's very right, much yeah. what they do. <laughs> and we win both ways. It's yeah, awesome. it's not like it's not a you know. <laughs> True Grit's not, like, terrible by any means whatsoever. <laughs> it's, it does the and job. Also, I would also say that, like, I, um, thinking of this era, I feel like David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh are both filmmakers, and there's probably more people, but those are the two I'm thinking of right now, who had very rich, like, uh, color or gradient schemes in their 90s work, and then they very comfortably moved into digital. Like, when I think of Steven Soderbergh, his stuff really starts to take starts to take on a new life when you move to digital filmmaking, and the same thing. <laughs> Finch, Finch or Soderbergh needed a help because Full Frontal is awful. But I mean, the, the, the <laughs> like it, it, don't worry his his push towards that, like yeah, he's 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 bubble happier. is just alive with cinema. He's happier. Oh, now. He's, 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 <laughs> he's a good movie, but I like it's very. But, but he's I mean, the iPhone stuff is he's a lot more comfortable yeah. with that now than when he was first yeah. switching to di- like he didn't like. He wasn't Rodriguez or, I guess, Lucas to some degree as far as, like, using digital cameras and being like, this is the way right here. Like, it was no, more like... Rodriguez was the first guy that I saw. He knows what he's doing with digital cameras. Yeah. Where it didn't feel like I was being cheated because they didn't shoot on film. Yeah, like, what, Zodiac was the first to shoot on red, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and, it looks, and it looks wonderful. <laughs> I mean, Pete's right then to compare Soderbergh. He's right, because that, that's the same kind of thing. It's a filmmaker who was a great filmmaker who was driven more by the filmmaking challenge than right. thematic you know catholic guilt or whatever it is we think of with scorsese or somebody um i guess to that um yeah that's interesting the um where, to talk about the like directly about the movie because <laughs> we're talking uh, nothing about what's this is not a scene specific <laughs> commentary which we don't tend to do but to address what's going on the thing i i there's so much like careful pacing in this as far as what we're ramping up to because we've only what we've seen a couple of sins so far we've seen what gluttony mm-hmm. and greed maybe yeah, yeah they agreed a lot of time on the first two murders mm-hmm. and then they go through right. the next three pretty qu- in succession mm-hmm. and even when I was you know, when I saw this when I was 15 I was very impressed at how it's you know there's almost no action there's almost no violence. Yeah, the biggest it's, scene is the big chase scene in the middle, yeah, and that's there's a it. Chase like scene every, in the middle, and which is well, a, a lot of a lot this of atmosphere. A drama. It is you know a straight character play with a little bit of police procedural, but and again, you have scenes where characters are in a library doing research, that's, or you know, it, it's it's. I remember even as a kid being you know, a little surprised by how successful the film was because on paper, it's not a particularly exciting movie. Especially for people that you know go to the movies for stereotypical popcorny reasons, and right. yes, I think to a certain extent, like the Sixth Sense, it got an extra boost by virtue of the ending. I think that was what a lot of people were talking about or not talking about coming out of the picture over opening weekend. This part, but hilarious. I think. Yeah. I, I, want, I, wanted, I wanted to get to this because it's, right. these are two of my favorite scenes in this movie because of how ordinary they are. One is Morgan yes. Freeman doing very Morgan Freeman-like things, studying dutifully while Sam, the bus driver from Speed, puts on classical music. 
in the background for him to listen to in the library. And then the the, ju- the juxtaposition of Brad Pitt like trying to cram notes in his car. <laughs> he gets some, he gets the Cliff Notes books, and he th- I like how he thanks the officer. He's like, "Good good work, officer." Like, what? Is- <laughs> I mean, you a package. <laughs> it's just it's it's good character stuff as far as establishing what this like what these two are, uh, like how they are acting in their profession. Well, what's what's what stands out, you know, then and probably more so now is that Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt's character is not stupid in any way, shape, or form, but he's not like movie smart as when you think of yeah. conventional movie cops. He's headstrong. He is a regular guy that, you know, frankly, has some politically incorrect opinions about certain things in the world, <laughs> and conversely, you know, Somerset is kind of a moral scold. Mm-hmm. Um. But again, this is an example of a movie where you know the characters are allowed to be as they are because that's what the story is. Um, and they want to be good at their jobs, like that's a big yeah, thing. exactly that helps too. And um, and there's not like there's not conflict between these two guys. Like you know they have an awkward first meeting, but after that they're just you know for a movie about you know, two cops meeting each other for the first time. It's, you know, it's not a lethal weapon. Like if there's no <laughs> friction here, it, it's I will we're say professionals. That, I will say that. On a, and I don't know. I'm assuming this is probably more of a, how Kevin, Andrew Kevin Walker's script was, and then how they decided to storyboard it in execution. But like typically in some kind of cop, buddy cop movie, we pretty much know who the villain is. And then, you know, we lethal weapon or whatever we, have the two, the the straight one and the wild card, and then they have to chase this bad guy. And it's interesting in this, it by the end, it is kind of like a three-person movie. But mm-hmm. through most of this movie, John Doe is only, as I recall, John Doe is the credits, right? That's all him. That's all his work. But we're not seeing Kevin Spacey or something. Yeah, because he, he was... He was we, the- we, he was completely unbuilded in this movie. Beyond yeah, the, yeah, he asked to be, like, he asked yeah, he asked to be. There was yeah. no marketing of him. He right. was he was held back for surprise reasons because at that he, point, right, right on the borderline of being uh, of being a, a celebrity at this point. He yeah, he's, he's he has what like outbreak the year before oh, or yes. whatever, and like well, and, and, and usual suspects is this year. Usual, outbreak yeah, ninety five. He had outbreak yeah. beginning of the year. Usual suspects in August slash September. And, no, August, and then and this I saw this movie in the theater when you reveal Kevin Spacey in the yeah. end. There were gasps in the theater. Because I guarantee there were people thinking it's Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspect. <laughs> right. The movie and, had uh, sort of, no, it's been a slow burn hit in the previous sort of quarter. Mm-hmm. And I think he had finally sunk in and that had become a sort of water cooler movie. And so there were yes. some people who gasped at Kevin Spacey like it was stunt. You know, people don't know the movies take a while to make. So yeah, like, right. it's that, yeah. Because right. of I, it works in a way it didn't when it was shot. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was very smart in that I, well, Many g- general moviegoers probably had no idea who he was. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you know who he is or not. I would almost guarantee that anyone that saw The Usual Suspects in the theater also saw Seven pretty quickly into its theatrical release. Probably the same demo. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, it, but it, it works rega- like even regardless of him being a, you know, a, a yeah. recognizable star. It's that. just the by the time you get to that point in the movie, it doesn't really matter who it is. I mean, it matters yeah. to a point as far as like, well, I recognize this face, but as far as I've been sitting here knowing that this guy is out there. He's almost killed Brad Pitt at one point. What's going to happen? Is it going to be a fucking demon of wings? Like what? And it's just this guy. (laughs) Well, at some point, it's that any other movie like this before this, there would have been scenes, first person scenes of the killer going out, killing people. There would have been a presence Mm -hmm. of 
killer would have been suggested. We have no idea who he is until that scene in the chase where we get an outline of a figure. It could be anybody, any unhappy city dweller. And I think that's the real stroke of genius here is we're not cutting away like we would have it in literally any other movie in this genre. Even Science of the Lambs cuts away. You would have yeah, we're, enjoy, we're enjoying our heroes rather than... Yes. And, so and the thing is, we forget what it's like to watch this for the first time where... We might be like maybe that Arlie Ermy is involved. Well, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of different. I don't buy, but they want you to think it's Morgan Freeman that's doing it because he the yeah. first one with the metronome and. Oh, that's true. You're right. I forgot about all that. Yeah. I can't say like I ever had a red herring thought when watching this movie for the first. I mean, granted, no, neither did I. But it, but I can't but, remember. But I, but but I, I can see where that could comes be there. from. But I, I mean, at the same, yeah. also like, not playing an age card here, but like you get used to. Seeing, I'd imagine, like various slasher movies or whatnot, since this movie toes the line between being a thriller drama and a horror film where you, you know, you have villain characters that are wearing a mask or whatnot, right? This is it's a psychological drama with horror elements. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a relationship drama about work, right? Um, but like you, there is a mystery aspect to it. It's just you don't necessarily know if there is a mystery to be uncovered. You don't know if there's some surprise cast member or if there's just one of the people you've already. It, right. it doesn't. It doesn't follow the law of economy of characters, right? Because it's not like well, there's only there's only Richard Roundtree and Arlie Ermey, so who could be? It's instead, it's like by the way, here's this other guy that you've never seen before. Well, I think by virtue of the pacing and the emphasis on character, the film makes it very apparent very quickly that it's about the journey and not the destination so you're not necessarily spending your time trying to play guess who or what you know figuring out who it is and why yeah um, and, by the rebel it's going to be the next sin is going to be this and that's going to be this it's or we're going to get a little more yeah. we might and you know what the thing is this thing has such a big like this is a, such a roller coaster that man when it goes like it better finish this ride really good and it, it does but i mean Normally, I'd just be like, "All right, the ride was good," but this movie like builds itself up till that ending. Well, sense in your pity your stomach that this is there's a doomy sense that it's not going to end up too well, bad. But well, like that, Morgan, Morgan Freeman even against Morgan, what you think. Morgan like, Freeman, Morgan Freeman even says it out loud. He says, "This is not yes. going to end well." <laughs> like, right? <laughs> this is uh, hold on. This scene, right, this scene right here. This is the last time everybody's happy in a scene right here because they're yeah. all they're all laughing yeah, about the shaking the room, brightness and sunshine in the world. Bruno Paltrow is going to end up with her head in the box. Right. Yeah, so this world you would ever want to see in real life is Gwyneth Paltrow, and she's dead at the end. The fact <laughs> that she does this movie, Pitt fights for that ending, and Fincher like, and Pitt fight for this. Thing. I think one of the smartest things yeah. in the script is to build her relationship with Morgan Freeman in other scenes. Yeah, they could have just left her, could have left her at home. Same effect, but it's even deeper now when you add that was relationship. That, was that added? I forget. Was that like a scene where it's like we need know. more of this? Like because that um, I wouldn't be surprised. Really, I wouldn't be surprised if in plot wise as you know him knowing that she's pregnant mm-hmm. but nonetheless you're right it's it's one of the reasons why it's my favorite scene in the film is it's, it's just about character and it's I, just about a character that didn't necessarily need more development but it makes the movie better that she gets it when you see uh, a good side of freeman that he's like yes. he wishes brad pitt could fast forward to where he's at in his career because he's making a lot of mistakes in his personal life and his professional yes. life that he's been through and just has to experience whereas morgan freeman's tired and does, you know doesn't have the time to sit and watch him 
figure it out. That's why Freeman's so good here too, and the movie's framing around him because you don't you don't learn much about Somerset as a person, but you mm-hmm. you get it. It's so much is implied. You can tell he's probably divorced. He, he might have a kid somewhere. He's probably he's handled a variety of cases. He's rubbed up against the brass mm-hmm. every now and then because of the ways he thinks about things. Like he's experienced at the same time. He's it seems like he's not necessarily roguish, but he certainly has ideas that seem to stray mm-hmm. outside the box. Like all of that's like you can just determine that because of what he's doing through you know visual tick or physical ticks or whatever well in this scene I mean, here, you see brad pitt doesn't check out when he leaves work he takes it all home with him he takes all the gross and and gruesome aspects of his job and brings them right home rather than checking out yes. being with his wife and, and it's just there's great like just not hitting you over the head type things it's subtle and it's stuff you pick up upon watching it multiple times or even the first but it's it's got those kind of psychological layers to every character that help keep the movie interesting as it gets older and you revisit it. Let's play the who else could have been cast in this movie game because there's a few things here. <laughs> um, Andrew Kevin Walker wrote uh, Somerset with William Hurt in mind. Huh. Okay, hmm. that would have worked. Yeah, it would have worked. Yeah. Uh, Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman both turned down Somerset. Gene Hackman keeps turning down all the good serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> It was night moves and he's out. That was his thing. (laughs) Um, What else? I think we all know, or I think, I think it's pretty common knowledge. uh, Denzel Washington was the Brad Pitt role and he turned it down Mm -hmm. and he considers that one of his biggest mistakes of his career. Well, he did fall in. So he did. Yeah. He got, he got back. And (laughs) we, we did. Well, that's my seven. And we did that commentary before we did seven because we're crazy people. (laughs) Hey, time time was on our side. Exactly. And uh, this one, I did not know until today. Sylvester Stallone was the Brad Pitt character at one point. He turned it down. No, no, no. How how was he not Somerset? This is post um, the specialist. (laughs) He's not young. I I mean, it just fell into his lap, I assume. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, oh, I don't know about this. With serial killers? So, That's interesting. I feel like it would be more like you're going to say, oh, it could have been Keanu Reeves. It could have been Tom Cruise. Like, meanwhile, I, I, I meanwhile have... at the New Line office, did, why did you send that to Stallone? <laughs> <laughs> he's on the phone. I, I, I have no doubt Reeves, likely Reeves among others, was it was probably passed by at least their agents. I would not be surprised by that whatsoever. Yeah, I can't imagine it wouldn't yeah. be. Reeves like, yeah. seems like the perfect guy that you would think, oh yeah, why why wouldn't he be in something like this at this point in his career? Christian Slater. Maybe. Yes, yeah. yeah. Slater's more like, a, they're like, well, there's another rung down, and then we get yeah. to Slater. But Pitt's interesting. Get the Slater out of here. Why are we even talking about this? Wait, is River Phoenix dead by this point? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he would have. Been um, well, I mean, this movie had to be being developed since at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, but yeah. Well, Joaquin if, if, would be in Andrew, Andrew Kevin Walker's next uh, yeah. movie with the eight millimeter, which he's quite good in. Yes. If, if Andrew Kevin Walker's writing this, yes, I'm sure he's looking at like young ingenues and whatever, younger younger stars or whatnot. He's like, let me look at the entire interview with the vampire cast and let's see which one stands out. And it wasn't Christian Slater. <laughs> And there's a lot of alternate different ways the ending played out too, which are so yes, just, almost every it. possible combination. Yeah, including there's a like, storyboarded well, like, one that's on the DVD, like in the Blu-ray. sewers or something with like a yeah. ritual thing. I I can't remember. Exactly. It was the it was the Thorn Cult. <laughs> yeah, <Michael> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a crossover. That's right. That's what happened. Did it, did They're it, like it, Halloween's onto this. We got to change it. What, Peter? Didn't, um, Andrew Kevin Walker. I feel like. It sounds like, Brandon, you know way more about this writer than I do. But 
I, yep, I have a podcast called Walk Talk. You can listen all about. <laughs> I thought that when he wrote this script, he was basically trying to, uh, I don't know if he's conscious, of that, record, but he was basically trying to be kind of like a Paul Schrader where he wrote this script where he was kind of isolated. He was living in a city and he wasn't kind of talking to people. Like that's the famous thing about Schrader with Taxi Driver, right? He realized he had gone weeks without speaking to a person and that's how he came up with Taxi Driver. I feel like, he gave a similar interview about how he wrote seven. Did well, he might have self-consciously that? done it like Paul Schrader. Yeah, I feel like that's more. Tower Records when he wrote this. And Wait, what did you say, Auntie? He was working with Tower Records when he wrote this. Oh! Listen to a lot of Nine Inch Nails. It is meant to evoke, the John Doe character is vaguely meant to evoke that voiceover from Travis Bickle at the beginning of Traxy Driver. Someday a real rain is going to come and wash the scum off these uh, Same sort of idea. Um, this film, movie feels less out of control than that movie does. It feels like it's made by sane people. Where Taxi Driver feels like they're kind of in crazy, you know? And it, I mean, it's speaking to a crazier time. I mean, it's, made, it's, it's starring the John Doe character, Taxi yeah, Driver. Yeah. You can, I, was, I was thinking about this earlier, but you can, it's interesting to trace like the through line of of serial killer movies and the appeal they have to the audience, or you can go what back to like night of the hunter, then like psycho. And then eventually mm-hmm. what set the uh, Texas chainsaw massacre. And and a serial you, killer, night of the hunter really. No, I know. But in terms of like, in terms of like a thriller based around like some kind of like key killer figure and like how that yes. a shadow a of a guy who is a murderer, but it's not his job. 31, right. But yeah, you go to M. Yeah. That'd be like exactly. the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the start of it. But like, what, what's the eighties? What's the, beyond the slasher film? Man, Manhunter. There we go. Manhunter. Perfect. To Thomas Harris. So then you get, and then you get the naturally, you get the silence of the lambs and you get the idea of a serial killer didn't come around until seventies. Until the, until David Fincher's uh, mind. Hunter. Uh, mind hunter. <laughs> 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 it used to be called the like deal at the time. Cause most people didn't know anything about that kind of, mindset you know i mean the mansons were coming in and then that's you know starts putting it more into the the conscience part of the conscience of things i yeah i should have used the term serial killer but in terms of like what scott said a man a man that's killing that's that's out there and doing you know acting in some kind of capacity gangster or a criminal exactly yes and how that and how that seems to align and how that seems to align with what audiences seem to want to see among other things on screen it seems like there's various evolutions of that kind of movie that kind of you can kind of draw a thread through as far as the ones that leave a lasting impact that lead to a lot of imitators coming out of it at the the same time Um, and i also think i mean you know when you look at this film and this shit's and freaky by the way i'm sorry but like yes, i mean no, it's, it's cool the, the the stuff here going on, like we've talked over the gluttony and the other stuff the idea of like he took his time to put like fingerprints in a very specific way on a wall that's weird <laughs> like that's that's something <laughs> um but no the, the the serial killer dramas that have stood out over the years are ones that have very compelling uh cops police officers heroes or you know clarice starling uh these yeah. two guys, even you know something like Criminal Minds, you know that show ran for fifteen years because of people liked the heroes in that show. It wasn't because they necessarily enjoyed watching the scenes of women in cages or whatever. Uh, it was that the show? Sequel. <laughs> yes. Uh, wait, what? Where's the Nighthawks sequel? Who more Stallone? That one, that? unfortunately, didn't do. Well, he wasn't a serial killer; he was a terrorist. For no, but he's the cop. I mean, well, okay, fine. He's not yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. still a, it's a it's a horror tinged movie. So. Yeah. Sure. Yes, and again, I very much like Nighthawks. Don't get me wrong. Me um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this, to a certain extent, these kind of films didn't become super successful until Silence of the Lambs. You know, Manhunter made like six bucks. 
Yeah. But yeah, that's a movie yeah. that, unless you were a hardcore uh, 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 Michael Mann fan, yeah. you hadn't heard of it until NBC heard it on TV saying, you know, you love Sounds of Lambs. Now see where it all began. Oh, yeah, no, this movie still, was yeah. the same actors. Yeah, pe- people still were like, um, Brian Cox, he wasn't yeah. an elector. Like, that's not a yeah. like, that's the general reaction. He seems more like that's, a real doctor. That's interesting. <laughs> um, okay. But... Um, but in terms of, you know, what you were talking about earlier about, you know, who could have been, would have been, might have been cast in this, whether it's his best performance, I would argue this is certainly the definitive Morgan Freeman performance oh, in terms sure. of what you yeah. think of when you think of him as a movie star. And he even has just a little bit of the warmth and, you know, decency and, and openness that makes him more than just, you know, the stern, you know, very serious gravitas man. That's he a, sometimes gets stereotyped as. That's a very good um, point. Yeah, you would like if you're trying to pinpoint what Morgan Freeman is as an actor. Yeah. This is like this is the model that you're like kind of getting out of there. Yeah, I mean, also you know, um, you, get, you get Morgan Freeman in two. Even though I feel like fans of the show know I do not love Shawshank Redemption, but isn't Shawshank Redemption also ninety five? 94. It's a year before. So basically within a, well, a year, whatever, Morgan Freeman is in two pretty big iconic roles for him. And it's shot. One's Darius Kanji. Isn't Roger Deakin Shawshank? So it's like yes. these, yeah. So very much these, what we think of as the iconic Morgan. Again, I'm not a big Shawshank guy, but that's a, that's a great, I that's a great, tra- a that transition right there where they're just on the couch together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, that's a fun one. Peter, Peter, speaking of that, I mean, yeah, I mean, this movie is a certain physical presentation of what you get Morgan Freeman. Shawshank is the narrating oratory um, Morgan Freeman that, you know, the automatic gravitas because he's speaking in front of your movie type of thing. Yeah, when when people make fun of, when they pretend to narrate like Morgan Freeman, they're doing bits from Shawshank. Um, And, yeah, I, I think this is, one of his, if not his very best star performance. Um, and I think part of the reason why this is a definitive portrait is that the film was so successful that he did get a lot of roles somewhat in the sandbox for the next several years. Uh, you know, Kiss the Girls, Long Game of Spider, yeah. uh, uh, the one with Anthony Judd. Uh, was, he, was he just Double caused Jeopardy, or was that... Jeopardy, the other one. Um, um, God, the Bone Collector or something? No, not though. That's dead. No, too. that's... Much, that's too, yeah. Twisted? Um, is he Twisted? I think he is. No, that's, no, that's, that's Sam Jackson. Jackson. Double Jeopardy? Actually, that is Ashley Judd. Double Jeopardy is Tommy oh, that's Tommy Jones. Oh, Tommy <laughs> this is fun. Um, it's whatever Ashley Judd's kidnapped in or like suffering from. There's like there's three like old stars that are in that movie with her. Exactly. This is the one where her husband gets accused of committing a massacre while overseas in a war many, many years prior to their marriage. Yada, yada, yada. Um, Rules of engagement. Rules of engagements. That's, that's Tommy Jones, that's Tommy and, Sam Jones and Sam Jackson. Yeah. High crimes. Under there suspicion. it is. High crimes. High crimes. There we go. No, um, I wonder why we couldn't think of that very specific title. <laughs> High crimes. <laughs> I think to a certain extent, I mean, yes, Kiss the Girls came about because of this movie, obviously, but it's a very different character. I think it's to, his, to their credit. Obviously, part- it was based on a prior source material. See, but- I, I watched Kiss the Girls not too long ago because it was streaming and I hadn't seen it forever if I had at all. And the thing I don't like about kiss the girls, which I don't think is, which I don't think is a very good movie is the, is that I don't believe Morgan Freeman as a guy who's making mistakes and, un, and not confident <laughs> in himself. It just, I can't buy it whatsoever. Like I get that he's acting and you're, like, but it's like, 
that's not the. That's I not enjoy Morgan liking Freeman. Spider more. I, I, I do enjoy Long. Well, because you're a Michael Spider Wincott more. fan for life, so yeah, you're gonna like a Long. No, Spider it's also <laughs> that you know, even back then, that was a great stood car crash at the beginning of that one. Not about not being about a serial killer, not being about you know some sexual deviant, you know yada yada yada. It was actually kind of weird that it was pitting him against a very old school master criminal. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, again, Met, not, Met, Metro you know, did that. Are I mean, what so. they are. <laughs> I like Metro, sort of. <laughs> just made Michael uh, Wincott movies. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I like him. I like I, him as the bad guy. I was watching. Uh, um, I was watching Forty Two earlier today, and uh, John, I forgot John C. McGinley's in there as the radio broadcaster. Uh, yeah, and, it, and it's the most un John C. McGinley role next to like identity, where he's playing like a, a really nervous father that has no rage in mm-hmm. him whatsoever. Yeah, so watching this movie where he's like ultra macho John C. McGinley, the kind that would be like a sidekick in an Oliver Stone movie, and he's coming in charging with guns and shotguns, like, good, yeah, all right, that's 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 my that's the John C. McGinley I know. Oh, is John C. McGinley oh, the guy yeah. right there? He's the right in front of us, yeah, he's got he's shaved his head, he's yeah, got right a there. Uh, point, point break, and yes. Yes, in Quick Break, he's in Get Carter. He had this, you know, he Get was Carter in this <laughs> Yeah, he gets his butt kicked in the elevator. Um, no, but I'm, but I'm, more, con- I'm more concerned himself. with the idea of remembering Get the Get Carter remake. That's that's what get, what's throwing me off here. <laughs> well, that's what you bring me on for. Okay. Um, but McKinley had built up such a typecasty reputation for himself that Scrubs was a huge change of pace for him. I mean, it was, you know, yes, he was playing, you know, a very over-the-top, cocky, well, whatever character, but yes, and it was, if I recall, he made a point to say, look, I will do this, but I don't want to be the villain. You know, he had just, he had, just uh, had a son who, had, who has had Down syndrome, and he was very adamant of saying, I don't want to, you know, I want to do something good, basically. Huge paraphrasing here, but... And, you know, that's one reason why that character was always on the side of the angels. Well, which yeah, was I mean, it's, it's very a very different. For it, it's a John C. McGinley character just with heart. That's the that's the difference yeah. with that. Character. Yeah. Yeah. The opening the entrance to this um, room. This is. is oh, yeah. Like, you don't know what's going to happen here when you get into a room where there's pine <laughs> there's pine trees like all over. It's like, what's this leading to you <laughs> up a sheet? And it's like, I still don't know what this is. It's some kind of person, I guess. But wait, there's the- more. For the detractors of the genreizing and stuff, it's like right here is like okay, can we call it a horror movie now? Yeah, can we? <laughs> we just officially. I've like, always considered this a horror movie. I have too, I mean, but you know those whatever. people on film Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Is this the first? Well, time? I think in a year with ten best picture nominees, that might have snuck in. It was that acclaimed. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, is this the first time? Obviously, <laughs> like obviously pre like Saw and stuff, where the killer kills basically another bad person to like because that's the whole thing because I mean, you could argue, i mean you could argue taxi driver is the guy that does that yeah oh that's true. i think there's a certain preaching yeah. from this character that's similar to what john doe would eventually become um he's the I mean, Thanos I, of his time yeah i mean it, it's it's and i'll be very curious to see assuming the previews are misdirecting that, you know, the Riddler's character in the new Batman movie, you know, and obviously that trailer feels very much at peace yeah, with a lot like seven and or saw. And you seem to have a, a Edward Nigma who is a serial killer who is, you know, preaching for lack of a better word. Here and here is the best <laughs> you know, the big jump scare of the movie. He's uh, a 
alive. He's oh, yeah. alive. <laughs> oh boy, that's a look. I guess it's yeah. just insane. Uh. Um, yeah, that moment, like, yeah, it's huge jump in the theaters. Like, well, yeah. it's, a, it's a great misdirect. You assume, and it feels dead. so, that's... like, they've built the movie up so far, it feels just, like, real. Because well, there's <laughs> yeah. also, there's an absence of any kind of thing yeah, like that up to yeah. that point, too. There's also very little music music in the conventional sense throughout this entire film, if I recall. Um, it, it plays it up in... Yeah, yeah. It's, there's a lot of because because you I mean, you talked about there's a lot of character driven scenes in here, so it just yes. doesn't have time. There's John Doe. There, go. there he is. Spoiler. Oh, <laughs> I guess he's wearing oh, a wig. Hair. Yeah, yeah. He's don't yeah. wear it. You think he's wearing a wig, or do you think he shaved his head before he went in to turn himself in? That is a good question. You know, maybe it's know. like, hey, let me get ready for the rest of this movie. <laughs> shave my head. <laughs> it's implied that he just cut off his fingerprints relatively recently. Yeah, so maybe he just cheered himself. <laughs> Yancey, did, did, were there any – the question that, that Peter asked as far as um, killers killing for the righteous good, righteous reasons or whatever you want to call it? Well, he, are we he, counting the 70s vigilante movies? Because they're like the anti-heroes or whatever you want to call them. But like, yeah. Yancey, did, can you think of any like like ones where like the villain is someone that's specifically going after people like that? Oh, where like Scott's saying where he's preaching – I mean, this is the this is the the, the big one for that, where the, where the villain is preaching at you, and that of course is a big thing that's that saw unfortunately developed much further, um, which I think is what we. Oh, did it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think before that. I don't think before that we. Ha- I think before that, if you had someone preaching, it would be like like Zodiac or the Gemini or whatever the killer's name is, and Dirty Harry, who's crazy and preaching some Charles Manson craziness. I don't. But that, yeah, that's tapping into Charles Manson Zodiac stuff. This movie wants us yeah. to walk out hanging our heads over the fact that the seven deadly sins are being broken. It doesn't achieve that as far as I'm concerned, but it goes for that. And Fincher extends the John Doe stuff to Tyler Durden later on in Fight Club, extending his preaching yes. about you know the world sure. around while doing horrible stuff. Yeah, but John Doe, John Doe is clearly designed to be cooler than <laughs> Tyler Durden. <laughs> Oh, you're in his comic. It's a little, you can read it. It's, it's, that reads is funnier. This feels, at least the way Spacey plays it at the end, it feels like, you know, his voice cracks like Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Mr. Smith goes to Washington when he's complaining about it. It's like, yeah, every weekend there's a seven deadly sins being broken in every corner. I think that's when the movie breaks a little bit and becomes a little too self-serious for its own good because I don't think that's a resonant... Uh, the seven, I don't know. I don't know how seriously we're supposed to take him. Just because, yes, he has a "quote unquote" good point, but you know, what does he do? With, what, what does he reveal to have done in the next scene, which is, you know, heartlessly murder a completely innocent person and b a character that we very much like. Well, sure. So, but any validity that his point might have is then negated by his actions. The only reason. Make this seven instead of the Ten Commandments because seven is less. Like I can't see any yeah. reason why not to make this. And there was a movie called Commandments, wasn't there? A little bit later with Aiden Quinn and, and Courtney Cox. Oh, yes, yeah, it's, uh, where it was... it's it's even grislier than this. Movie. <laughs> I never even thought about watching that movie. But then there's de- there there's the there's the deadliest movie of the ball. David Wayne's The Ten, just bodies everywhere. <laughs> um, and this is, in my opinion, the best scene in the movie. And there's cardinal rule, you know. Well, where was Gwyneth Elter at this? She had done Emma, right? That was no, 92? that's after. She, this is one of her first things. On, like, she's, yeah. she's got like three or four parts here or there. Oh, but this is better her. or worse. She was mostly famous for dating Brad Pitt at this point. 
And she had been in that uh, Flesh and Bone movie where she sort of Flesh and Bone, and then there's she yes. was she was she's young Wendy and Hook. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. There was a buzz over her that she was a strong actor. Well, right? she had famous parents. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah Blythe Danner and um, Bruce Paltrow. Bly- yeah. Blythe Danner, I don't think, was ever taken as seriously as Paltrow from the beginning. Was I think that Flesh and Bone movie? She really was impressive. Um, Th- this, this um, is certainly this is her coming out in terms of mainstream. Yeah, well, this like this is this and what like um, the Emma and. Sliding doors. Sliding doors, yeah. Yeah, sliding doors. Yeah, it's mid nineties where she's becoming like yeah. a star, and then yeah, the the I guess it's peak is the is the end of the is like the end of the nineties and the two thousand. That's where like yeah, beyond like uh, the Marvel stuff, obviously or whatever, if you want to consider that. Even that was sort of like a not even like a comeback. It felt kind of like a comeback as far as like I haven't seen this person in a while, yeah, and, and she has great, and like she had, like that whole cast has great chemistry. That's a huge part of it, regardless yeah. of how much you like the movie. And, it's the cast chemistry really sells it. And what what made Iron Man, regardless of what it would become, what made Iron Man stand out in two thousand eight was that it was a comic book superhero movie with grown ups in it. Grown ups yeah. doing grown ups doing pitter patter. Yeah, yeah, doing grown up stuff. You had you know Jeff Bridges and and who I think was in his fifties, and Downey Jr. was I assume in his forties, uh, and even you know Gwyneth Paltrow, she was younger than them. She wasn't some you know twenty year old fresh off the you know beaten path actress. Downey and Jr. Terrence they were veterans. They were veterans. As Rhodey, the the highest paid actor of Iron Man. Oh yes, um, of course, of course. Downey uh, Jr. He only meditates now, so he is ageless. He just uh, he just is. <laughs> That's his. That's his whole thing these days. Uh, this bar, by this or this restaurant, this is like the L.A. movie restaurant, right? Everybody goes to this restaurant. <laughs> this, this is where this is where um, they meet in Training Day. This ex- like maybe this exact booth. I mean, honestly, it's the way it looks. Right there. Yeah, he's, he's right behind. Let's talk about the the, the thing about this. The the the, the unnamed is is there a city in the world that rains this much where you can drive forty five minutes to what looks like farmland at the end i think that's you could do that and you could do that in washington if you want to go seattle there's a lot of empty Mm -hmm. seattle's not that big and then you could get out but it'd be mountainous or more dirt looking like a different a different uh uh, the weather is entirely different for the last it's like they leave they leave the city i mean that's the thing (laughs) like that's intentionally it doesn't ring true as any single city well, that's what I was saying earlier. It's an, it's ambiguous on person. It's 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 heightened. It's stylized. It's not trying to represent something specific. Uh, it it's it's like you can't pinpoint a time it, and place because it feels like this, but it shows that, and it's kind of kind of like Rob Zombie does that with his films a lot, where it's just indeterminate. Like it look, oh, it's seventies, but oh, there's a cell phone, or the, you know, it's just kind of. All well, honestly, like romantic comedies do that a lot as far as they don't exist in a specific world. They exist in a place mm-hmm. where you can always have rents and you can play these places and be alone and have no yeah, job, yeah. but still like manage to, you know, have a lot of drama in your life. That's more concerning. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's the same kind of thing. Sleepless <laughs> in Seattle has the Empire State Building and Seattle. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that specific movie does that. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> as a key romantic comedy. Yeah, this wouldn't have, the ending wouldn't have nearly the same without the 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 sweetness of the two of them in this scene. There would be no no, it would be nauseous at the end. With the well, box. yeah, I mean, it, it, so it, it, it works for a plot reason, obviously. But 
I mean, in true noir fashion, the the darkest thing to happen in the movie is happening as the sun is finally coming up and the rain is settling. We'll talk about the ending more when we get there. But I mean, there are some great lines that kind of build into like what that's supposed to be as far as like, I don't know what's going to happen right now, but we're going to be ready for it. Like that's it, it. It sets it up quite well as far as getting to that point. From a, at least from like a visual and thematic perspective, regardless of how effective mm-hmm. it is in accomplishing it on a narrative point of view. Um, <laughs> what else? Let's see. <laughs> um, I missed that Yoda. I love his Yoda line. Is that I feel like the Yoda line. Yeah, Yoda line's great. Yeah. Well, it's just like this is all a lot of Brad Pitt frustration at this point. As far as like what, what we're getting nowhere. Like what are we doing? Somehow Stallone playing this part would not have the same. <laughs> no, like I don't see that. I don't. Well, Stallone, Stallone's got a Stallone's got a huge ego. Like he wouldn't allow would stuff to happen. Stallone version. There would have been no partner. He, he'd be making jokes that aren't funny. <laughs> what like, are we doing over here? The hunk of chunka. Oh He's sitting around his grandma's underpants, smearing peanut butter on himself. He's forty nine in nineteen ninety five. Yeah. Um. I mean, that's probably about what how old Morgan Freeman was back then. Um, now again, you know, 1970s Stallone, early 80s, Nighthawk Stallone, Night absolutely. Yeah, he, he would probably be very good in this. There'd be no That's seven fun. without Nighthawks, let me tell you right now. <laughs> uh, it is the same genre of urban thriller bordering very much on horror movie, yeah. uh, comparatively. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it certainly was unique for its day in terms of its focus on international terrorism. And the idea of a criminal who doesn't do it for money, you know, I don't want to quote the Dark Knight here, but you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> he doesn't do it for money or power, blah, 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 blah. Um, but. Val Kilmer turned down John Doe. Why? This was, this, Why would any working actor is, turn down a part like this? This is diva Val Kilmer, though, in the 90s. That's true. This yeah. is, and he yeah, might have he also just. It might have also been like, uh, well, I can do this supporting role or I can be Batman. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We don't know what else he was doing. No, by any chance, or was that just not even... Sorry? It must have run past Kiefer Sutherland at some point. To be oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they both were... I'm sure Donald was being like, you could be Somerset, right? And he's like, oh. <laughs> my, son, my son is John Doe. The cruelest irony. The eighth sin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this movie was nominated for Best Editing. It lost mm-hmm. to all 13. It won three MTV Movie Awards. Can you identify what those movies were? Yeah, right. I know uh, one of them was Best Picture. I don't know the others. Best, best Movie, yes. Yeah. Two more. I got to wait and see what the audience has loved. And then uh, the best Villain? Best Villain, yep. Yeah. And uh, Best Kiss. You're close. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chase Scene? That wouldn't make sense. Nope. Couple, I mean, best like part, best yeah, new best star, couple. best new star. Close, it's most most desirable oh. male. Oh, oh, Morgan oh, Freeman yeah. got a movie. Yeah, best, yeah, Morgan Freeman won most desirable male. Is <laughs> <laughs> Mark Moon? Look at Mark Moon Jr. He's yeah, looking pretty svelte. He's in Batman Begins, right? He's in, he's in a he's lot in, of Chris Nolan movies. He's Memento. He's he's the he's the hotel manager. The Mandalorian. He and I were talking about yeah. this, or somebody, some of us were talking the other day about this. It's sort of a cliche to say about him, but the truth about Brad Pitt really is that he always has been a character actor in that, obviously, mm-hmm. 
handsome guy. Because like right from the beginning, it's Thelma Louise and this and this and, and California, and, 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 California, true, is, true romance. I mean, well, like he, yeah, he's he's very he much. He just a, he he got elevated, but yeah, his the parts that he is known for and that he was liked for are these random supporting character roles. Well, and he always discussed this period in his career from arguably interview the vampire up until Troy. Maybe yeah, Troy. It's sort of the killing uh Tristan, whatever that character's last name is, uh basically overcoming the typecasting of Legend of the Fall. So that's why he would make movies like Seven and Twelve Monkeys and Seven Years in Tibet. He was um, also he was also considered difficult during this time too because I mean the movie Living in Oblivion there's a character specifically that's oh, him right. by played okay. by um J, uh, James LaGrosse who was like the Brad Pitt that didn't take off they kind of looked alike back in the 80s or the Johnny Swade he worked with Johnny Swade yeah, too. yeah and and then you know that character in uh, Living in Oblivion is based off of experience working with Brad Pitt and oh, it's quite hilarious um, and quite well, ridiculous, but I'd also say that I feel like, um, yeah, I definitely think Pitt is 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 the weird, like, really handsome leading man who's better as a character actor. Having said that, you know, though, going back to Scott's uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards, and then eventually Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. I think working with Tarantino, he that actually, even if the part is smaller and Inglorious or whatever. That to me is the leading man, Brad Pitt, that I think we just somehow never saw until then. Because I don't think he, I don't think he works in Joe Black. Look at 12, Twelve Monkeys. He was like, he's, not the, he's, not the, he's not the leading man in that not movie. The, oh, yeah, okay. right, yeah. So, like, Glorious is because he gets to be weird. That's the thing. Yeah. He gets to be yeah. weird in that movie. <laughs> like it's, it's I'm, I'm I'm using a generic Troy, term, but he's he's a weird he starts guy. Starts doing around the time of Troy, which is 2004, he starts doing more conventional leading man star vehicles again for a while. Uh, some but of them, he gets, some of them, you know. He, he gets uh, to pick them better. That's the thing. Yes. Like he, he's so he starts seeing Mr. and Mrs. Smith, um, you know, Troy, and along with, you know, offbeat stuff like Burn After Reading. Um, oh, he's, of, oh, yeah, Burn After Reading, he's great. Yeah, he's great in that. Yeah, 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 like, uh, he was never anything but a good actor. Like, he had to overcome yeah. being handsome but he was always a good actor you know? well, he's improved as he's gone along too you can yeah, he's, he's kind of like a, a Channing Tatum where it's like yeah he's uh, actually now he's good you know like where you can watch them through their films improve I want he also okay. came about sorry go ahead Peter I was just gonna say I I agree with Nancy that I think I think Pitt always could be good but unlike I would oh here he comes unlike I would say like <laughs> this Tom freaked me out when I was a kid you know, the, you know, the classic thing of Tom Cruise always given like 150% in general. I feel like interview with the vampire, Tom Cruise is having a ball and I don't feel like Brad Pitt's that into it. And Peter, I love you are on that commentary. We don't need to recap that right now. Let's let's pot. He's doing a good job considering his miscasting, his major yeah, miscasting. I, I yeah, agree, but we, t- we talked all about that. We do not need to repeat that. Let's talk about this now. This chase- the commentary listeners have listened to all the commentaries now? Yes, they, have, they, they will collect them and they will find them. <laughs> you can hear this exact same argument on the interview of the vampire commentary. 
Let's talk about this scene. Because we'll, we'll pause. We'll get back to pick. Yeah, this is the one gonna... action scene in the movie. But this chase scene is awesome. Like, cause it's, oh, yeah, it's a great it's a, chase it, scene. Because it's not a, it's not a I'm going to go down every right corridor and know exactly where he is and follow him. It's a, I have no idea where the fuck this guy is. And I have to go yeah. every, every different direction before I go the right way. And it's and so, even even the way they hold the gun was more realistic than what we were used to in a lot of cop films. Yeah. Just the way he's Very looking, awkward. the fact that this movie switches to like really rapid handheld all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, yeah. And answers the age old question, who would win in a fight? Brad Pitt or Kevin Spacey? Exactly. Yeah, we've been asking that for years at this point. Ever ever if since you were thrilled by Slice Malone versus John Lithgow. Ever since see no evil, hear no evil, it's like who could beat this man? <laughs> I think John Lithgow would have been a good John Doe. Huh. It'd be the I'm obvious job. Yeah, 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 he's played he's that. Yeah. If he walked in, you'd be like, of course. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. You know, that's a good point, Aaron. I didn't think of that. This is very well staged for it needs to feel of the moment. It, it needs to feel like he doesn't know his way around this place. Like, you're right. Yes. Well, it's really yeah. dangerous. It I'm, just, I'm stealing this line from the, the actual commentary where David Fincher says, like, oh. I didn't want to make a generic chase scene. I want to make one where he's confused always and doesn't know where to go. Well, it has the same, it has the same, it has the, geog- the, 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 the sense of place and geography of a great chase scene, like a chase scene in Bullet, where you get a sense of where he's going and where the other guy's been, and he's about to be there where the other guy just was, and, and, and it's, it's, it's built with a sense of, of of you, you can follow the action clearly, you know. Yeah, very much so. Which is impressive because of this labyrinth and uh, apartment complex. We don't know. We don't know what this place is, but like the, it doesn't. I don't feel lost, despite the character being lost trying to find the other character. Which is it's incredibly impressive. Also, everything looks painful in this. Everybody looks like they're getting hurt. They're going through glass. They're jumping off of things. Everybody looks like they have sprained ankles and cuts all over them after the end of this chase scene. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, Pitt keeps his weapon down. As yeah, well. he acts like a cop. Well, <laughs> or a yeah. co- like a cop should. <laughs> as as Even the way they, they hold their flashlights in a more realistic way than we usually see. Yeah. I love um, that shot of the of John Doe running with the silhouette. That's great. That that yeah. shot. Yeah. He's like limp, he's limp running. He's limp running. But he leaps over the banister. That's awesome too. Like that's he's like the shadow. <laughs> that's, yeah, high, yeah. high theatrics and Yancey, what are you saying, sir? This movie's this movie's been effect, so effectively stylized in terms of the deep shadow that you get to this scene where you can have a character completely in silhouette and it doesn't feel like a stunt. It feels like yeah, yeah. The movie has come to this sort of orgiastic point, and, and I, I buy that we can only see this. Not only that, but he's a guy with a hat, like a guy in a fifties movie and a coat. Right. Well, this hotel looks kind of reminds me of Blade Runner, though. The hell yeah, but, you had a Blade Runner. I wouldn't be surprised so. that the Bradbury Building's right around here somewhere. Honestly. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like it, it's very reminiscent of that, and you could. It's probably. I, I think it was an influence on. Oh, for I mean, Blade Runner. It was for you know, movie, yeah. everything we talk about seems to be influenced by. Blade right. Runner. Deep Rising is one of those influenced by Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So, do you think that at this point, because we know that John Doe oh. has a plan, um, when he shoots at Brad Pitt? You know, he looks out the window and he shoots. Is he trying to make sure he doesn't hit him? He's just trying to because his plan doesn't work if he doesn't get to do his his big thing at the end. Well, his yeah. I mean, I'd like to think it's a little bit it's a little bit fluid. Like he doesn't maybe know exactly yeah. what he's going to do with those last two sins. But like between the way they act when they have the photographer going after him, but when he's the photographer and the way this scene plays out, that's when he gets the idea of okay, I'm going to delve into since they're investigating me, let me see what I can do with this. That, that said, that's when he shoots when he shoots at them and when he shoots at him, I don't necessarily think he's trying to kill him. I think he's just trying to be like, 
you know, stay, I'm going to buy time, stay away from me, do this. Well, this is the, the, what sets into motion the, the demise of Gwyneth Paltrow. You invaded my territory investigating me. Now I'm going to do the same. Uh, the, pho- the phone call that he gives after the scene is my, one of my other favorite scenes. This, there's a lot of favorite mm-hmm. scenes in this movie, guys. But like the, oh, phone, it's the, di- the very, he has very specific word choices that I really, when he says like, I hurt one of you things like that that are very just key to how he's how his mind's going mm-hmm. great shot right here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah oh my gosh the and the okay. cam this the gun into the camera shot oh my god good stuff i remember right there yeah criterion put this out in a big 125 dollar laserdisc box set at the time during an exclusive silver nitrate print whatever that meant i have it beautiful laserdisc yeah there's that, a good that, DVD packaging on this. Was we'll, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about the whole media in a second because there's a plenty to go with that. That that shot that with um, Somerset yelling Mills and him just like he's he has a gun next to him and he's saying no as if like I don't want to die. Also, don't hurt my friend Somerset. Like there's just a lot there. <laughs> All of this is really cool. And someone's burning you know trash. That- from a, from a sort of larger sociopolitical movie history point of view, usually a movie that's a downer is not a hit. You, for a lot of people. If the ending is bad, it's sad, then it's a bad movie. If the ending's happy, it's a good movie. Um, this movie being able to be a big hit. This changed things. People, this does change yes. things. Yeah. wanted to see something a little more cynical. Yeah. Well, I think to a certain extent, it's the same way that most of the classic romances are doomed romances. I think if you make a movie like this that earns its ending, and it makes it through the test screening process, which has its own issues... I think audiences will usually embrace it. Um, I think the idea, you know, I, I, yes, it's a, it's a sad ending, but it's a, you know, it's a joltingly shocking ending. And I think that is different than, you know, oh, you know, everything's miserable. Everybody lost, blah, blah, blah. They, I mean, they also settle in a place. Like I know we've talked about already that there's multiple endings, but there, and we'll, we should save some of this. But I mean, I know there's yeah. like versions where you know you see, you know, he reveals the head, shoot him, and that's it. Movie end over. And yeah. Like the adding the Morgan Freeman coda at the very, very end, the little narration he had, the Urban Ernest Hemingway quote he has. That was a concession they made that they all agreed upon. And I honestly think that's the best way they could have gone about it as far as where they leave the audience. Like, I think that's, I think that adds to why it's more of a success than it would be. If it just cut to credits after he shoots Kevin Spacey. Yeah. It's an ending. It's just, it's incredibly dramatic. Like it's incredibly sad having more, having, you know, the, the elder statesman still competently saying, I want to fight for this world. That leaves you with something that gives you like something to lead to, to walk out on. Cause it it shows that it wasn't all for nothing. Sure. At least Somerset has somewhat, come about that he's he's you know as you said he's willing to he's he's not given up anymore sure for you know, he's willing to fight for a shitty world is basically what the quote says. <laughs> that's what yeah he believes in the second part still very bleak you know? it is it's i'm not saying it's not bleak but i do think yeah. as far as a, a final impression that an audience member has that's more than cut to black everybody's yeah. dead uh, and, and that ending get the whole sense of the plan coming to fruition well, we can, we can yeah. talk more about that when we get there, because, I, I mean, there's a lot to get into. Yeah. That the ending is a big piece of what lets us step outside of the science of the lamb's shadow as well. Yes. The science of the lambs, clear, clear, I mean, everything's, I mean, Hannibal Lecter gets away, but it's a ha-ha-ha ending, and uh, our our little villain hero's free, and, but... Uh, and it's it's a conventionally triumphant but ending. Clarice <laughs> gets Buffalo Bill and and saves the woman from all the, all the characters like, you like get something good happen to them. Yes. Right. No, yeah, it's it's, it's 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 an earned triumphant ending. I um 
I have a question, and I wanted to bring this up earlier. But we were talking, obviously, the Mark the, with the Mark Boone Jr. character coming in as like, is he like a government spook? Is that the thing, or like just he just uh, has information? He's like an idea. Yeah, he's an. I think he was a former spook. My my question is, does that work in this? Like that, I've uh, that's like the one. No. I'm more content it's with one. I'm more content with the ending than Yancey is. So I, but I always look at that scene as like, so to get to the next plot point, we just have like a random guy come in to hand them the key. Like that's. Oh, the- I guess so. Yeah. Well, it was yeah. always silly to me because it never made sense that it, it, whatever, it's not a deal breaker, that an obsessive like John Doe would get his books from the library instead of buying them. True. And again, it's, it's, it's a silly, ha ha, that's funny plot hole, not an actual, oh no, that hurts the movie issue. But that always stuck out as, you know, again, you'd think he would buy his books for posterity's sake. Well, even then, I mean, beyond the reasoning, it's just like we're stopping yeah. the movie now because we, the way to break into the next plot point is a guy comes in and hands him a sheet of paper. That just seems weird to me, like this, as far as the writing yeah. is concerned. I think it also shows that, that, that Somerset is willing to bend the law in a way that may not be so great. It shows that he's, you know, a little roguish. Sure. Which again, it's, that's, it's, that's, to a certain extent, that's established by having a switchblade in the opening scene. Yeah, um, but like it, the the come up the the result of that is we can't go into this room right now because we need some reason yeah. to have it, and then it's like we'll just have a junkie just say a thing. It just it feels like I don't know, rant, like shoe leather yeah. almost. Like it's just like you could have cut some of this and just. Make a yes. tighter movie. I mean, even Leo, for example, Knives Out. You know, the the film doesn't really need all the stuff with, with the car chase. You just needed them outside the house for the trailer, right? Which Lakeith Stanfield uh, even comments on, saying that was the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it 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 is awkward compared to how discipline the rest of this movie is but it's whatever i'm, I'm basically i'm just trying to i'm basically picking holes in one of my favorite movies so i've always agreed with you in terms of that because when i when i first saw the movie again that was my one little eh, whatever the, the only thing that would add to a scene like that is someone in the background going things are worse than ever <laughs> i gotta say like has um I feel like Silence of the Lands, when we, when we get to, you know, Buffalo Bill's uh, lair, which is that great moment where you see, I think, the moth. That's when, I think the moth hits something, and that's when Clarice... It fly, like, flies into, like, mm-hmm. the kitchen or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, this is the guy, you know, and then you go to the basement, and you see, like, the Nazi quilts and everything. I feel like this is, like, the next level of, we're really going to show you, like, serial killer. Like, yeah. We're like, we're going to go, this is going to be so dark. You know? I mean, it's great, though. Like, it's a I great apartment. The, a lot of space. Yeah, I love his journals. I love, like, all that stuff. It's all, like, well, but I don't know. Are there any other favorite serial killer layers that you can think of besides these two movies? Oh, serial killer oh. layers? Oh, man. Let me think about this for a Listen, second. Listen, was kind of goofy in the cell. In the cell? Yeah, that's yeah. a great one. Um, but when it, what's always stood about Silence of the Lambs is that you have the two murderer characters, and in Buffalo Bill, you have one of the more realistic serial killer characters on film. I mean, he's as authentic as the real thing. And then you have Hannibal Lecter, who's the ultimate movie serial killer. Exactly, basically, yeah. The, the oh, family man. in Texas Chainsaw Massacre have that damn house. That's Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that house is great. 
This is, by the way, I know that we're talking, so we're not able to hear this, but this whole, when he reads from this journal about, isn't it like a subway train? I met a man on a train today and I threw up from his finality. (laughs) I I threw up all, all, it's it's, it's the delivery Freeman has where he says, he's doing it right now, where he says, I threw it, I didn't even notice when I threw up all over him. And the man was not amused. Like, it's just the way he like, says it. <laughs> And I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah, like, uh, My head hurt. great. Yeah. yeah. Which is on the, let's talk about the whole media now. Because that's on, it's in like the DVD case of that. That like, that exact passage mm-hmm. is in there. But like the, Yancey, you had the laser, the laser disc, right? It had some of the pages of the uh, of diary the, as well, or the John Doe book. Yeah. New Line seemed like, it seemed like because the production design was so intense on making composition books full of this nonsense, they're like, well, we got to keep using this. We got to get our money's worth out of it. So they put it in like every <laughs> right. form, every form of the home media release. Like the, cause that one happened that the DVD new line platinum series release was, was the composition book with the, mm-hmm. the, the hands and everything and the, yeah, the passages and all that stuff. And then like, I, now I have the Blu-ray and the, the Blu-ray is just a digibook. Well, it's a digibook, but it still tries to have like some of yeah, that, like it's still like, it's a darker digibook than the other digibooks. Right. So it's, <laughs> Can't wait for the 4K where it's like a hand or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's a box. What am I talking about? Where's that release? Where's the box edition? (laughs) The what's in the box edition? It's just a big cardboard box. It has like a, it has like a, like a, um, a DVR version. (laughs) They actually did some color timing changes with this when it came to uh, Blu-ray. I remember. Yes. I think they fussed with it every time it went, it got a, you know, especially had some toying with it as well. So, Doc, 4K would be the first time you'd actually be able to approximate what it looked like in the theater. Yeah, the- true, true. Yeah. This That's is a really striking movie, and, and, and you can never go back again, but until we find out who John Doe is, the sort of presence of John Doe is really effectively creepy. Yeah. Really mm-hmm. suggested by all his junk, you know? Yeah. This does a, a great job of continuing to bring up the kind of... <sighs> that he has... Yeah, that that it's not a more conventional story where there is, as you say, the law of a comedy of character and John Doe is one of our characters we already met. It allows him to be truly creepy, you know, because it's not somebody who could cover up their creepiness by acting like Morgan Freeman is acting, which is always the kind of weakness of these kind of movies is that somehow the killer is able to appear sane in every scene he's got with the main character until he is found out to be the killer. And then he's immediately unhinged, (laughs) you know, Saturday. 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 Yeah. So uh, we were talking about Pitt. This is the first Fincher Pitt collaboration. They what did Fight Club, and then they did the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Benny Button. Benny Butts. World War Z two. The uh, yeah. The, well, before World War Z, the thing I wanted to see was their Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea remake that they wanted oh. to do. Like that, I was into this idea. Like <laughs> like to be the Kirk Douglas. Sorry? Is Pitt going to be Kirk Douglas? I'm not sure what he'd be. Like, if he, they, they'd probably, you know, it was supposed to be Disney, so they'd probably want Brad Pitt to be their lead star of that movie. But at the same time, having him be, what, Nemo? Nemo uh, yeah. What's his name? Um, Nemo. No, the, the actor. Jim, uh, what'd you say? Oh, Mason. Mason, thank you. God, it's killing me. Um, that'd probably be the part he'd lobby for. I wouldn't be surprised, but. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I like their collaborations. I think they do a good job together. Yeah. I, I, I'd want to see more of them. I feel like we've been teased a lot and I keep uh-huh. getting disappointed. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, it, it's weird how 
they have, you know, they work together a lot, but also a little. Um, but I mean, Pitt, oh, I mean, Pitt's career comes off of this movie. Basically, this jolts him even bigger. I I think with you know taking him into different roles and seeing that you know he's willing to ugly up and he was of a generation that followed Tom Cruise and what Tom Cruise did almost from the get go was make movies with as many interesting directors as he as would be willing yeah. to work with them and you know that was you know he would make star vehicles with you know Oliver Stone Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese uh you know, et cetera, et cetera, Brian De Palma. Um, yeah. And that was something that was emulated by Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, uh, uh, Ben Affleck to a certain extent, and people of the, DiCaprio, obviously, um, where you became a movie star and you didn't just go and do action movies, yeah. which was by today's standards would be a comic book film. Mm-hmm. But you used your star power to get interesting movies made and to a, some of them were hits and some of them were not. But back then they were cheap enough that you didn't bankrupt the studio with one of them. Um, Funny enough, Pitt's still not doing. I mean, yeah, still doing it. Uh, interesting thing, like uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, like the underground sex club thing, kind of goes right into eight millimeters. Like he's flirting with it here, and then tries to expand it as much as he can in his next script. He's probably a huge cruising fan. Cruise, yeah. Is, you know what? You know that's possibly an influence. Cruising is definitely. What are the, some of the movies that he uh, sort of ghost wrote? You, you mentioned that he had script doctored some stuff. I'm curious. No, he did. I don't think he's around for cruising, but he, I, there's some other oh, movies. For cruising, I know, but yeah, I, I remember reading something about like an interview with him and he was talking about all these scripts that had gone by him and he'd done little brush ups on and it was uh, some, other, other Fincher movies, the game and panic. Yeah. Room, he, he talked, he oh. dug through uh, uh, event horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everybody, we wrote some of X-Men. Everybody wrote X-Men, but he wrote X-Men as well. I stand by my draft. <laughs> you said frog instead of toad, and you and Joss Whedon got in a huge fight about that. Could you imagine my, I mean, Doug Ray Scott saying that line I wrote? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but once once he went, I was out. I was out. I'm like, this is never going to be a hit without Doug Ray. Loyal to the end. Mm-hmm. He's got a chance to be Wolverine again, so I'm very happy. And, like, I mean, he was doing a lot of the – I mean, because they're all, like, dialogue guys, right? They're all just, like, make it funnier, make it, like, make it wittier. So it's, like, him and McCory yeah. and we and Whedon, they're all coming in mm-hmm. on X-Men and Sp- Spiderman and uh, the, the various Superman drafts that there were because that was trying to be made forever. So it's, like, that's that's the stuff they're working on, like, generally. It's just things that you either get made books? or don't get made. But, take a look at this. I was trying to think of serial killer layers. I can't like. There's not many layers I can think of. Like I got like psych. Like there's a lot of houses like Psycho, like the Bates Motel. But it's like uh, Freddy's in terms of, got the boiler room. Like like Silence of the Lambs is almost comical. Comical in terms of how much of a layer it actually is when you look at it. Yeah. It's like he has a fucking well in his house. That goes down. <laughs> he dug that thing, man. And then he bricked it and. I guess you built the house over it. How does that work? How do you have a well in your house like that? <laughs> you do it Dr. Holmes style, and you have lots of different people do small parts of it, so nobody knows what they're making. Oh, like H.H. Uh, Holmes, yeah. Um, this scene, while very good, is probably the closest the movie gets to underlining it, its moral with a yellow highlighter, um, in which, you know, basically... 
Morgan Freeman's character comes out and says, you know, the world is rotten, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you'll see it too. Um, it is, but I think that because you get, because know, you it's get fun. It just, reports, yeah. I think it works. Yes. And I like the fact that they're actually having a conversation and a difference of opinion. That's something that you don't always see in movies in general. Um, you know, they're not necessarily having a conversation about the plot per se. Um, the other thing I want to point out is we just passed the, the, the sex club scene or whatever, in which once again, we have un- just unfathomably horrific scene of violence that's entirely suggested. We see none of it right. other than a picture of the device the murder dildo, whoever that is. Um, Leland Norris. Again, this is really yeah, Leland Norris. I think he 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 like he got himself like really worked up so he could like play that character, right? Like he did like something like either stayed up all night or like just did something like really intense to kind of get him into a yeah. The panic he like took, you know, made himself like hyperventilate that kind of thing just to get into the state of mind. Offer him an alien resurrection where he has to be worrying he's going to be giving birth to an alien the whole time. <laughs> my my favorite thing about Leland Orser is that. Is is Cronenberg decided to name the characters Leland and Orser in that movie? That's just funny to me. <laughs> in History of Violence, the two killer characters—they're named Leland and Orser. Oh, well, really? I didn't realize. Yeah, that. it's just—it's so random to me. But he's like, he knows them. <laughs> now, is this a, now? What is, is I'm trying to think of other movies that have this structure where it's an, an older guy and a younger guy and the younger guy learns a pretty rough lesson and is basically dead, but not dead, but finished by the end of the movie. Usually it's the older training guy. Training, yeah, training day. Is the I mean, day, yeah. I, you know, the first time I saw that, I was like, does he go to jail in the morning? Because there's a lot of bad stuff with his name on it. There's a lot more that's like the reversal where it's like the mentor yeah. becomes the villain. Usually yes. the mentor gets like, like the recruit. Or something like that. Yes, yes. Finding Forrester. <laughs> yeah. Every, every, every superhero movie where it turns out the person training them was actually the villain all along. Right. Iron it's Man, funny. Captain He's Marvel. Entirely in that. Right, Pitt's almost the ingenue in this, and he and he he gets vanquished at the end. Uh, and it's the young person, the young, uh, unexperienced person who's learning the hard lesson. Which is just a, a, it shows you how deeply bleak this movie is. Oh, the the bright light is extinguished. Yeah, both of them white too. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's amazing yeah. that they uh, that this was able to come out and be a big hit. I don't, uh, you know, it would help um, when you it helps when you do it, you know, first essentially, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's uh, something that's very commercial, but also new to it to a degree. Yeah, it, it, it was good. I mean, obviously, that's you know, another if, good factor. Yeah, if, <laughs> if you could open the movie, and the movie is good, word of mouth will spread, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you got the two thumbs up on the poster, and, and this is still grown up coming to the movies, and this is a grown up movie, really. So, oh, absolutely. I mean, this came out the same weekend as Showgirls, and many people, including myself, argue this was probably the more adult movie of the two. That was the same weekend. Lord. Mm-hmm. Wow. I feel like this is the most frustrated Morgan Freeman is in this movie right here, where he's throwing the knife at the board. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what to do anymore. Like, well, he's what? throwing away his precious metronome, so yeah. Like, yeah, he, he yeah. trashed the metronome, and now he's just like, he's, chuck, he's <laughs> chucking a knife at the dartboard in the middle of the night. He's waking up. He's no longer, you know. Even this, it is, it is graphic, but it's far enough away that we don't necessarily have to relish the details. 
Um, it's such a this is a the descriptions of some of these too. Yeah, you just kind of yeah. get into it. And it's like this one's a jigsaw trap through and through. Yeah, really, very much so. Right. Um, because there's a solution. <laughs> exactly. Right? Save your life, but I guess know. the the lawyer has that too, right? Where he has to cut a bunch of himself off. To Jesus, that's nasty to think about. Yeah, but, well, that's a jigsaw trap. And the idea of that, yeah, no one would actually survive this. You're cheating. But so it's an Amanda trap. Yes, yes. Or the other guy <laughs> whose name escapes me. Uh, it's a, it's it's a Con- Costas Malior trap. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Costas Mandalore? Oh. Costas Mandalore. He's, my, he's one of my favorite Star Wars Mandalore. characters. One thing I love about that series is you have characters that were like literally cameos in one movie right. and become the protagonists two or three sequels later. The cop that was like featured briefly yeah. in one movie is the, is the, like, the guy. Like four has a guy movie. for like one the line being in tortured. three. Yeah. And then Scott Patterson takes yeah. the reins. Oh, and... Who gives the worst performance in any of those movies? And that's oh yeah, insane. he's terrible. And has the and he has he also he has the luck of being named Scott Patterson though, so it really worked right. out for us. That's true. So has anyone seen? Just curious, what's the running time? Where are we now in the movie? Because this I'm just ninety four minutes. 90, yeah, we're ninety four minutes. Ninety four minutes. minutes a two hours. And minutes. here we go. So, the last so, he, fourth. so he's the last half hour of the movie. It's yes. the guy from Swimming with Sharks. Detective, it's it's such a great turn, by the way, because you know you're sitting you're sitting in the theater thinking they're gonna eventually have to find this guy and like get in a gun battle or something, right? He fucking walks into the police station. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of unusual structure, do as you said, to have him come in and surrender a half hour before the end, where he becomes you know a full blown supporting character for the last two reels of the movie. He probably just cut Sorry, his hair, right? I'm now. I'm, I'm buying into this now that he had hair and then he shaved it before this happened. I, I, I think yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, like such so, so deliberate too, where he's he's done the finger the fingers obviously, but like the yeah. blood he has because they say right the blood there's some other person that we don't even know, like which is presumably going with Paltrow, right? That's the idea. Yes. Um, but the idea that he comes in, he could be clean, but he's choosing not to be. He's choosing to have blood all over himself. That's a great. Great, uh, great moment again of a, a very like uh, of of a of a normal image that is uncomfortable to see the splotches of blood, and then you go to him like dipping the the hot tea bag, yes. which is just a, it just feels gross, even though it's just a hot tea bag. Now, Spacey before Glengarry Glenn Ross, I don't think I would have recognized Spacey from anything. Right, that was kind of his big. Uh, Oh, he is really good now. Yes, in, yeah. in terms of like, yeah, having totally. like significant oh, stuff to do. Like he's been, he's been like, sm- he's been like smarmy <laughs> villain guys or smarmy supporting characters and things like Working Girl or the See No Evil, yeah. Hear No Evil. But yeah, in terms of bad like, guy in that Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Yeah, yeah. in terms of like, uh, in terms of like a major role. Yeah, like Glengarry Glenn Ross, I think is like the like yeah. most high profile. Unless, and, and look who we got here is the lawyer. Is it Schiff? Yeah, is it Schiffer? Yeah, Schiffer upper. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. West Wing. Totally he's yeah. rocking, rocking a bow tie too, so you know he's yeah. evil. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think of some of the movies that were inspired by this that were not great. Like, what was that one with uh, Dennis Quaid and um, Switchback? Yes, Switchback. Danny yeah, Glover. Switchback. Yep, yep. Yes. Danny Glover. Lover with the porno in his car, with a car filled with porn uh, magazine cutouts. 
Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, just like Pulp Fiction, there's a lot of the imitators that came from Seven that are mostly miss uh, as far as the creativity goes. I do feel like 8mm was better than it was given credit for when it came out. I think Brandon's a fan, right? Uh, I, I respect a lot from it, but it's kind of humorous uh, the way they treat the pornogra- uh, pornography yeah. industry. Uh, it was at a time when porn was completely taboo and yeah. um now being what it is it's kind of humorous that the way they take it but i mean well, i find a lot of joel schumacher's non-batman movies are really weirdly puritan especially in the yeah. later years of his career you know eight millimeter uh you know phone booth which basically argues that the guy deserved almost deserved to be shot for thinking about adultery um but yeah i i think nicholas cage is wonderful in that picture no, and Joaquin yeah. Phoenix is uh, outstanding. Yeah. Like, and the the scene where he calls the mother of the victim to ask permission to take revenge is something I've never seen in the movie before, um, before or since, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the from the first half of that movie is very strong. I think. Mm-hmm. I think it moved up. You're right. I think it once it right. once it goes into you know hardcore territory, literally. Uh, yeah. I think it kind of it, you're right. It's a little melodramatic. You know, it's a little silly. Like, oh no, these people enjoy sex in a strange way. It's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I guess people, sw- Swimming of Sharks is right before this, and that's like a, but that's like a smaller movie. Yeah. Anyway. That's a limited release. The ref, yeah, yeah, the ref is, but that's a flop. I mean, there's, so yeah. it's like, he's doing stuff, but yeah. I mean, yeah he's that. working. Uh, he was the, the, the villain for, I think, the second season of Wise Guy. And that was one of the first shows to be heavily serialized in a way that, you know, now we take for granted, Buffy, X-Files, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, he was the, the villain on the most celebrated season of that show. But that was a call television show. Wise guy. We're, we're avoiding the fact that the, there's an added context to Kevin Spacey now that makes him even creepier in this movie. So it's, it's no. wasn't there. Oh, yeah. Whatever. I, mean, I, re- I lost interest in him as an actor before any of that happened <laughs> and it's not even like the things that he's allegedly had done it's more of the it's more of the reaction he's had as a person to those things that makes him seem creepier the weird like youtube videos he posts and whatnot that's like that's the stuff that makes him seem odd those things started before that where he wanted to be seen as bob you know bobby darren or yeah apex he's the cool leather clad you know it's like he wanted he wanted to be a movie star in the traditional way but despite being like he's like a theater guy, so he's like he's overly right. showy at the same time with all yeah. that. Great, so. he was so great. And same with you, he was so great for this five or six years. He did so much good work, you know, in American uh, Beauty. Yeah, falling out of fashion. Well, he's, he's great in the Negotiator. Like I think that's a oh good, yeah, that's I really like the Negotiator. That was a good. Is that well, like like, like basically everyone else in the cast, including the director, pay it forward, killed everyone. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which, for the record, other than the ending, I think that movie is fine. Oh my god! What's the, uh, what's, the uh, what's the Alan Parker the rest of the Oh yes, the life of David Gale. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Man. A movie so ridiculous, I magically guessed the ending from the previews. I'm <laughs> He's already taking the wrong roles at that, at that point. He's already taking roles you don't want to see him in. Where yeah. Got sex scenes and stuff. He's, you know, well, he's, and then it was funny because when he played Lex Luthor, like I think Scott, you put it at the time, like it was at a time where uh, Kevin Spacey needed Superman more than Superman needed Kevin. Yes. Spacey. When if, when he, the Superman death of Superman with the Tim Burton one, Spacey was floating as Luthor because he just 
broken out a few years ago, and it would have been a huge get. I mean, it would have been the equivalent of Nicholson being Joker. Mm-hmm. But by the time the movie actually got made, it was, well, I guess Brian Singer's doing this, and so I guess Kevin Spacey will be Luther. That's nice. Yeah. Um, it is, it's good. It, yes, the timing is what's the problem. But, like, it's good casting. It just doesn't help that it's a bad movie. And frankly, he's not good in it. No, he's one he's, of the reasons. Well, he's very big. He's, he goes really big. He, he's, he looked. Well, because it's trying to be like a sequel to the Donner thing, right? So he's like, well, I yeah, guess he's trying just, to ape Hackman. I got to do Hackman. I got to do it bigger. Yeah. I got to be um, bigger than everyone on screen. And you have like Parker Posey turning it up to 11. And obviously, John Cho's hogging a lot of screen time. So, I mean, it's just. <laughs> Cal Penn was. Really Cal Penn sorry, was Cal Penn. all the Cal, lines. I'm sorry. I, I, meant, I meant Kumar, not Harold. <laughs> that was the weirdest thing, him in that movie. And just. That really was. Like, because it was like a news story. That's what killed me, where it's like, Cal Penn joins Superman Returns. <laughs> oh, you know what? Wait a minute. Um, hmm. Wait. T- t- that just said population 8 million. Is, I'm trying to think. Oh, is it one too it, high? Are you going to cross-reference that with all the populations you know offhand well, of no, major no. cities? <laughs> 8 million makes me think it's... I think that's New York. Like, that's pretty big, man. 8 million in, nine, in 1995? I think it, maybe it is supposed to be like... Definitely many. know where you can get to in an hour from New York that looks like the end of this. No, 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 no. I think we've all... Yeah, agree. It's all literally not a real place, but like... Hmm. Kind of like how Gotham is New York, but it's not really New York. Or no, wait, it's Gotham, Chicago. Gotham's Jersey. Oh, it's New York. Okay. <laughs> but they shoot, but the Dark Knight shot in Chicago. Well, yes. the Dark Knight shot in Chicago, but then Dark Knight Rises is Chicago and Pittsburgh and L.A. The Washington State population in 1995 was 5.4 million. Let me see. But Seattle, you know, they could have just quarantined that part off. And you got yeah, nothing. but Seattle isn't a crime. <laughs> city is like... No, see, New York was eight, 18 million people. Wow. Well, New York's grimy, like city, though. Pittsburgh or some Philadelphia yeah. or something, you know, like I think that's yeah. what it's for. God, that smugness just did not. Tra- I just it so a little went a long way with Kevin Spacey and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so to speak to this, Nancy, are you are you just checked out at this point from this movie? Like as far as this no, it's, it's, trio it's still, goes, it's totally riveting. I just think Spacey at least plays it as if what he's saying should make everyone in the audience hang their heads in shame for being part of uh, modern society, and it doesn't connect. Not even the way that De Niro's rambling in Taxi Driver does. It's partly Spacey's playing it as this sort of, I'm a smug supervillain who knows, which t- takes us away from the, the first two hours of the movie. I don't feel like we're dealing with a supervillain. I feel like we're dealing with a, just a very clever serial killer. This whole ending thing and, and, the, and the, the, the putting her head in the box and getting Brad Pitt to get, it makes him a little more of a master, master criminal mastermind. And those well, guys I mean, are just... Well, think of the things he set up, though. Like, the, the damn guy that's been in the room for a year and everything. He has pictures every happened. day. Nothing like that is even close to ever happened in real life. There's never been, like, a really interesting criminal mastermind. So the more but this isn't reality. Mean on that, what? This is, no, no, none yeah, of this movie's in reality. Which is why later when he says, it's a fine, it's not, it's a shitty world, but I'm fighting for it. I don't feel like I've seen the real world represented. I feel like I've seen a more pulpy enjoyably cynical world prison, but isn't really the real world. Well, his experience is the city he lives, lives on and the media he takes in. So whatever it's the world is, whatever he's consuming himself in. So he could, I mean, we could see this whole world, but the one he sees is the one that concerns him. Right. But Morgan Freeman at the end, basically, you know, confirms that the world is a 
miserable place. And I think, you know, it, it might be, but it's not as miserable as this movie. Wants. Is there a better version of this kind of character that you can think of? Like after this? Yeah, after this? Yeah. No. My mind goes to spoilers, Bill Paxton and Frailty. Oh, great. That's a great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Well, he's a reluctant murderer. Yeah, he's, but he's doing because he was he's chosen seen, and he yeah, has yeah. reasoning. And also, uh, the, mo- the movie's also entirely focused on him, so it makes yes. you know, it's not the last 30 uh, minutes of it. I will say, you know, seeing this on opening weekend, this whole car ride is incredibly intense. Oh, yeah. Because you don't oh, know what's coming. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's somewhere in the realms of. You know, plausibility. It's not like aliens are going to come down from the sky or anything. Uh, this isn't a Cloverfield movie, but well, control uh, has changed. It's now yes, exactly. in, under. We were John Doe's and control. John Doe's game now yeah. says Somerset. <laughs> <laughs> and again, because this is this is so unconventional in terms of how these kind of films play out. Right, where you have the end is a, you know a slow car ride and a chit chat. Yeah. Um, well, out to empty field. It's, it's not a big. Yeah. It's incredibly. It was incredibly exciting. You know, it's not going to end well. You know, by the way, Kevin Spacey is acting. Well, and by the way, he turned himself in to let this play out. Yeah, yeah. You feel Why bad. For Brad Pitt being not as intelligent as yeah. he. Is, he's know? about to have that that North by Northwest crop duster scene intensity of just being out and what's this truck coming? What oh, like any yeah. anything something? My we, we, line you know, when they find the dead dog and he goes, "I didn't do that." Yeah, that's I like a, that. That's uh, yeah. a good line. Yeah, the we skipped over my the line, but it's it's when Summer says, "As if John Doe's head splits open and a UFO should fly out, I want you to have expected it." Like it's just like right. it sets up this kind of <laughs> what is going to happen. It's just yep. it's also just drolly humorous. I just I just enjoy that. So here we go. Is when he starts cracking his voice, starts big speech. Yeah, You're supposed to believe him, you know. And I'm like, eh. I don't know. I mean, I, I think he believes it. I think it's it's. I don't think the movie. I mean, again, I think the movie says, "Okay, he's got a good point," but you're allowed to have villains that make sense without justifying their actions. The same thing with you know, and, and, and again, overpopulation is a myth, but let's humor me for a minute. The whole you know, yes, Thanos has valid reasons for wanting to decrease the right. population. Doesn't justify him snapping half the world away. He's uh, less. Uh, Thanos, I believe, more is someone who believes he's right than. Yeah. You don't think you don't think Spacey thinks what he's doing is right? Is that the? the I think he does, but I think we're also presenting a world that is visibly a shithole, and so we're supposed to feel like, oh man, he's right. We're all a bunch of losers because we don't think about the seven deadly sins. But I don't think the seven deadly sins are on anyone's mind for good reason because they're only in Shazam. You don't hear about them in anything but Shazam and this. (laughs) It's true. Do you hold that one all night? Do do you? you, I mean, as. So more than half of us on this podcast are the chosen people. Do you feel like that might play a role? I'm serious though. Do you think that might play a role? The fact that we're just not, I mean, that's not a, really a factor in some of our lives I beyond, beyond a vague understanding of them. Cause I, I'd imagine other people that are more religiously inclined or at least have the Sunday school training or what have you might be more predisposed to that concept. As, as conservative a Jewish guy. And I never heard him mention this, you know, I mean, Shazam, I only heard about it from Shazam. Oh, wait, I gotta ask, what is this Shazam thing you're talking about? 
Because <laughs> I, I know the movie Shazam. I know the movie Shazam, and it's not in the movie Shazam. So yes, it is. <laughs> it, not kind of. All of the villains are the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't okay. like that movie, so I guess I've there, there are seven crazy CG characters that are all constantly referred to as the seven deadly sins of that. Yeah, movie. I totally forgot. Yeah, yeah, so when in Shazam, all the way back to the beginning of Shazam in the forties, whatever. He becomes Shazam. The kid becomes Shazam by going to this weird place where he, in the movie, he meets Jimon Hansu, right? Who is actually yeah, Shazam. Yeah. He's older Shazam. This yeah. hallway of the seven deadly sins, for some reason, and you see the different statues of the seven deadly sins, and that's, that's where he has his origin story. I'll put, I'll, put, I'll put this out there. I had no familiarity with Shazam outside of seeing that movie and knowing that he exists beforehand. So I didn't know anything about the Seven old, Deadly Sins. Old, old Shazam comics are great. I, what I'm saying is, though, I didn't know anything about Seven Deadly Sins being in, you know, connected to that comic series before watching that movie. I did know about the Seven Deadly Sins before seeing this movie. Maybe not by heart. I couldn't just rattle them all off right away. But the idea of this is a thing, yes. I was aware of that. They were on the poster, too. In case yeah. you needed a reference, it, it, it there. Be, and the film was marketed with a certain expectation that audiences would be vaguely aware of what they were. It hammered into your mind of the trailers, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that was it. Than the Ten Commandments, they're a little more rooted in. Well, it no, sounds no. cooler when you're dealing with the seven deadly sins as opposed to the Ten Commandments. I, I look. I mean, um, I would say as a person who was uh, who was born and raised in like you know, Catholic school and, and everything. And I was never super religious, but that's the education I have. Um, yes, obviously when I saw this movie, I knew what the seven deadly sins were and stuff. Um, I will say that I don't, um, cause I've, I've heard Yancey say this before and I think it's an interesting take, but my, my, I guess, interpretation of when, when John Doe gives the speech about there's this, we see a sin every day and we never do anything. I never in the, I was never, I never felt shame as, and that's a person who grew up knowing what those sins were. My feeling was always more like, oh my God, it's, it's so scary that a person like John Doe, you know, has nothing in his life that now he's just taking it out of the world and he's using, that's, yes. And and that's just what my version is. That doesn't mean I'm right or whatever, but I never thought of it as a, Shame the audience. Yeah, I never felt shame. I felt his conviction oh. to it was scary. What was scary? Yeah, because the movie because the movie's not trying to be Taxi Driver. It's not trying to comment yeah. on specifically is, society. He is very much supposed to be Travis Bickle. He's I mean, Travis like you could see, you could see the inspirations in the writing as far as what it's drawing from to make this story. But in terms of this movie representing what the '90s are like, I don't think it's trying to do that. I think it's just being a very stylish exercise and like how we can make something creative and new and draw on some ideas. Yeah, I personally never felt like I don't think so, I don't think there's social was commentary like, going on here. I was just like, oh crap, like, this guy is twisted. That's all I thought. Like, I, I feel like the movie goes for a little bit of preaching, which is, I think, unfortunate. It's the only mark I would hold against it. Hmm. Because, I, you know, like, you see a sin on every street corner. Now, those aren't things we think of as sins. I, that's, not, that's just the modern well, That's life. the idea. It's a disproportionate response. Yeah. He's not wrong that, you know, there are things that we used to be a bit more judgy on that now we sort of let go, for better or worse. I mean, you know, you always hear the stories about all the dumb stuff you could get stoned for in the Bible. But the idea is that he is punishing petty crimes with capital punishment. I mean, that's why he's a villain. Let me allow reveal my ignorance. Where did the seven deadly sins, what is that tradition? Does that come from? Uh, I think it's Christianity, but you'll have to double check. It's Christian Christian teachings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What? 
Sorry? Post Ten Commandments? They're not even explicitly listed in the Bible, I'm saying. So it's, I mean, it's like I. Pre modern religion, I think. From the Dr. Seuss book. Seven Deadly Sins were first suggested in the 1995 movie Seven. More <laughs> than. No, I, I, yeah, like I, I don't know. I, I put this more on John Doe than I do a commentary on the people, but like, and it's just scary that the guy, like, what a guy can turn a guy like him into and yeah. become because he hates how things evolve and move on and progress and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I had a guy when I worked at, uh, I worked at Circuit City in college. And we, one of the Harry Potter movies came out on DVD and we put it on the demo TV to watch. And he had it, he went apeshit because witchcraft was bad and stuff. I'm like, this is like the early 2000s. And I'm like, ooh, that, that guy would be John Doe. Like, that's, uh, yeah. He didn't kill anybody, but I don't, that I know of. But that's the type, that's what the kind of guy John Doe is. Like, well, and it's, it's very unfortunate how little we've progressed in that sense. And I remember. It's a fun show, uh, uh, Net, uh, Teenage Bounty Hunters on Netflix from a couple of weeks ago. And it it's, takes place in a religiously conservative private school environment. And if you compare it to something like Saved from 20 years ago, I like nothing's Saved. changed. Nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah. Um, here's, uh, here's my third favorite Arquette, Richard Arquette. <laughs> I think, um, I think my, um, what I take away from the John Doe thing again, getting getting away from necessarily how the audience is supposed to perceive it is more the fact that, and again, I could be wrong, but I think before seven, the age, the 70s and 80s age of like the serial killer movies, it's very much that the serial killers do, like to kill. Um, they might have certain like patterns, like, oh, they only shoot people in the head, they only chop, they whatever, but like, they don't necessarily have a moral reasoning. It's just they have a compulsion to kill. So I feel like with John Doe, it's more like he has this purpose that he feels in life. I guess, again, I could be wrong. Purpose, but, like, but he not, loves the theatrics. He, oh, he absolutely. Like, but like, Texas, Massacre, they don't really have that. Like, even in, I don't think, um, Sons of the Lambs, I think, I mean, that's Hannibal Lecter. He just, he really likes killing and eating people, right? I don't. Hannibal Lecter is, is a snob. He thinks you know, right. Yes. I mean, I think the taxi driver thing does. I don't think taxi driver is trying to comment on the seventies. It's, co- it's commenting on big city, uh, the, the way big city life can, can grind you down in the same way this is. But I think because we get to understand I, Travis Bickle is a little more in that movie. We understand that he's, he's quoting stuff he read last night while he was in his camp. But you're also, you're coming off of things like Vietnam and what have you that are directly connected to that time period, right? I don't think anything, in, I don't think it's, I think anything in seven is direct, is being directly tied to here. Which is, it's, it's an intentionally a timeless picture. Post-Vietnam area is all of this. This is all, this is all post-America is worth anything. This is all America is a wasteland. It's the same timeline. It's the same era of disappointment. It's just 20 years later. It's just a little pulpy. Your taxi driver is more a product of, I think, a truly deranged at that okay. moment guy. This, this is insane. He turned himself into the police 22 minutes ago. We're already at the box opening, and this might be the fastest feeling part of the movie, and it's some of the slowest scenes. I was I was about to, I was about to like, mention that because the, the, the I looked at the yeah. time. I'm like, holy crap! <laughs> uh, there's, <laughs> the, I mean, this movie, as I mentioned, was nominated for best editing. It's uh, Richard Francis Bruce is the editor. Mm-hmm. He's been in a lot of things, including a lot of George Miller films, uh, be a Thunderdome and onward. Um, the 
what I like about this sequence a lot is that it's very rapidly edited up until he gets the box and then everything slows down because mm-hmm. it becomes it becomes John John Doe in control of everything once again where you don't, like it's 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 panicky you don't know what's happening everything and then you go back to Mills and John Doe and suddenly the movie settles a lot down like you're saying it becomes very slow because now you have to mm-hmm. draw out what exactly is going on in this box because we we don't know we don't know what's yeah. in this box we don't want it to be something bad we know it is and it's very effective watching all of this. Like, Nancy, are you, like, beyond the preaching aspect, are you into this kind of reveal that's going on now with him? Oh, yeah, the reason this is, I mean, at this point, the movie's got you twisted so tight that they could do whatever they wanted. They could draw this out as long as they wanted. Kind of, I mean, you, you, you know something bad is going to happen. I'm trying to think what did I think was going to be in the box. What else could it have been, unfortunately? I mean, I, I wouldn't believe they would do, at the point this movie comes out, I wouldn't believe they would do something like that. Still, but, I mean, the best kind of movie is one where I they're playing with. Yeah, well, and she's been kind of gone, so it kind of well, out of my mind. It, it puts her away. It takes her out of the movie for enough time for you to both forget about her, but also know exactly what we're talking about. And it's it, it, that's really effective. The, the kind of movie that can make you still care about a character that you haven't cared about for the past hour. I mean, that's, that's, that's good work. Well, you fall in love with her in that little scene with Morgan Freeman, you know. And she's the only thing in the movie that's, like, soft and nice. Everything else is so grimy. Richard Roundtree. I think he's story. too cool in this Kevin Tice. He seems too much like Lex Luthor at this point. He doesn't seem unhinged at all. Which well, because he's make... already won, right? I mean, that's, that's his thing. Yeah, no matter what Mills <laughs> does, he's already yeah. achieved some victory. Um, what stood out in this, you know, the ending for obvious reasons, is how it circumvented two standard tropes of this film. First, the quote-unquote damsel in distress actually dies rather than just being kidnapped and threatened. Never even had a chance. Pregnant. Pregnant. Never even, never even had a chance. And you get the whole, put the gun down, it's not worth it, don't do it, blah, 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 where he says, fuck it, and blows his head off. Yeah, true. Without having to have him grab a knife first and throw it. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was, there was, yeah. 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 (laughs) Usually what happens, you know, bad boys, for example, he puts the gun down, then the guy pulls out another gun and gives him moral license to shoot him. Yeah, like if there was a minority, if there was a minority report going on here, somebody definitely got arrested. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This is a red ball. Uh, (laughs) Definitely a red ball. Yeah, because Brad Pitt finds out she's pregnant in this scene too. Like he, he did not know. And it's just bam, bam. It's I very easy bam, bam. to spoof this, but I do think this is a good performance. No, I know, I, I know some. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's spoofable because it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 unique and it's 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 compelling, and sometimes that's the easiest stuff to spoof. I mean, you know, we've been doing Tom Hardy Bane impressions for eight years, but part of the reason that works is because it's so unique. And boom, he's down. The fire rush. Fade to black. Perhaps he was wondering why you'd shoot a man. Uh, quick flash frame, <laughs> and he, he doesn't just shoot him. Like, does he shoot him once, or does he get him a couple? He get, no, he, yeah, he, no, he, no, yeah, he, 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 yeah, he gets him down, and then he's like, "Let me," and then let me, and then let me one more time. I, I want the coroner to know this was not a mistake. <laughs> and he just looks lo- like, oh, yeah, he's empty. like there's he's no, empty there's now. nobody. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that look he gives is quite good.
That's pretty cool. And you go through all that emotion and then you go to this shot that I guess we would see as objective. It's just the... Well, they have no idea, right? There's no radio to the helicopters. Two cops and a victim, like not knowing what the hell just happened. Yeah, he's pretty broken now. And they've been there all day dealing with it. Because if I recall, the scene takes first starts in the middle of the morning. Um, Mm -hmm. So they've been there for 12 hours. Or it's, you know, daylight savings or whatnot. It gets dark at like <laughs> four, you know. <laughs> what realistically this- happens at this point? What 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 hap- what, hap- what would happen next? You go to what? Well, I'm guessing he doesn't, you know, these cuts of deals, you know, obviously extenuating circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Probably, probably doesn't go to jail. Probably fired yeah, from the force. And he probably, yeah, assuming he doesn't, you know, kill himself or what have you, he probably gets a job as a security guard somewhere. Buys a factory in Delaware, starts making soap. (laughs) Well, if if this were the Saw series, he would become a disciple of John Doe. (laughs) (laughs) He would realize realize that John Doe was right. And uh, that, that, backwards. So the, cool. the, 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 ask, the, the asking not to be billed, that's got to be at least a little ego thinking, but you can name me first in the credits, so I'm the first Those name you see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, first forensic man in the law office. What a credit. Because <laughs> he, uh, he gets billed twice in these credits. Oh, yeah. it's, he gets uh, first, sloth. And he gets, Victor Sloth. <laughs> and he gets billing in order of appearance. Um, Assuming that uh, Arlie Ermey and Richard Roundtree suggest there was a lot cut out of the script or out of the movie at some point. Well, of course they do because they're not in it that much. So that's of course they're going to say that. <laughs> I'm sure when they signed on, there were just meaty pages full of all of their character development that were somehow released. Well, I was John Doe in the third draft. <laughs> well, I mean, Roundtree's this was Doe. the 1990s when most movies were not two and a half hours. So. I would argue that this was pretty much what it was intended to be from the get-go. Yeah, uh, I know, it was I a two-hour movie, and that's basically what they were back then, and still are. It was certainly time for the end credits here. You want to play the other movies that have credits running backwards game? Sure, go for it. There's a surprising amount. <laughs> really? Memento. Not Memento. No. The no? Conjuring. Not the Conjuring. Irreversible, because it's a backwards oh, yeah, movie yeah, anyway. Yeah. Oh. Uh, run, run, Lola, run, run, run. You know, run, oh, yeah, run, run, the run. The ship- conjuring, conjuring the top credit is backwards. It absolutely is. Credits don't run backwards, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not an end credit, but it's still like a. We're thing. talking end credits. I don't know what else we'd be talking about. <laughs> what else? There's one you guys should know. I think. Thx. One, one, oh three, yeah, oh, okay. you're right. Yeah, Thx. Yeah. That's a pretty good movie. What did he end up doing later? <laughs> Great. Movie. Uh, he a movie about he made this movie about cars. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he, he produced some duck thing, and yeah, uh, he he, bro- he he made Marvel what it is today. Like he got it on the map. A Lord, a Lord of the Rings knockoff, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. Something nice about thing? something about radios. Did I? Didn't he do the 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 Ford biopic, the car guy, or yeah. Right. About a man in his dream. I like that movie, uh, Tucker, the man in his dream. Oh yeah, I like it. I'm just being a jerk. Oh, uh, yeah, there's others, but I mean, those are the most significant ones. Uh, yeah, Stoker. Stoker does it. I like Stoker. Yeah, God, I like that movie. That's a good movie. Uh, so we talked about seven. Anything else on set? What else can we talk about here? 
Well, yeah. it still holds up. <laughs> we'll have yeah. the, whole, the whole number, like the seven, is eight and a half, is nine, is ten with Dudley Moore. We eventually be able to do one movie for each number in the first. Oh, you can go pretty high. I've, I've played this game before. You can get you can get pretty up there before you have to start like really. Can we count them. eleven? Eleven. Bruce Willis has got like eight of them. Yeah. <laughs> the Fifth Element, Sixth Sense, Twelve Monkeys. Lucky number eleven. Twenty forty nine. Yeah, that kind of counts. Twenty forty nine is much later. We get to twenty forty nine for a movie that made three hundred million dollars. Um, there's no sequel. Uh, there's no prequel. There's no anything of that nature. There are comics. Seven not- comma two. There is a movie that was supposed to be a sequel that got turned into something else called Solace with Colin Farrell and Anthony Hopkins. Were they going to try to do uh, Somerset again, like a, a different detective story with Somerset? Uh, that I'm explored? sure it was in development at some point. Yeah. Uh, it probably had a page on Corona's coming attractions. Um, what's the, this is random, what's the Aaron Eckhart um, one, the serial killer movie, him and Swank and uh, Ben Kingsley? Suspect Zero. Suspect Zero. Uh, there we go. Yes. That's the director of a Shadow of the Vampire. That's like the one thing, a few things I remember about that. <laughs> Marine, Marine Gay or whatever his name is, yeah. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. That's a weird one. That is a weird one. Is it good? I don't think I've ever seen it. It was a summer. It was like late summer because my mom and I saw that in theaters because she's she was, she was a huge um, Shadow of the Vampire fan and we like serial yeah. killer movies. So like What's the one with the... Uh, the one that did you, Angelina not you not sorry not killers Eric Carey and Moss oh, take, taking lives yeah taking lives yeah, and uh, I saw that specifically because it was DJ Caruso and I love the Salton Sea so I was like I gotta see what he's doing next and then they made Suspect Zero and then he made other movies that I also don't like <laughs> um, including I am number four of course the Snowman. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never saw it. Is it? Ever? Yeah. It's terrible. It was the worst movie of that year for me. Yeah, it's, it's certainly up there. Um, Which is, but well, we should have known that in advance because he gave us all the clues. But it was still, in fact, a terrible movie. <laughs> Peter, do you want to watch the Snowman? <laughs> it is not very good. They didn't quite finish it. They had to scrabble what they could. Wait, is it Rebecca Ferguson? Is that who's in it? And yeah. Fassbender? Yes. And, and J.K. Simmons, inexplicably. Because <laughs> he has, the, the role he plays is so bizarre, less bizarre than Val Kilmer, but um, still bizarre. Was dumb God, he was in that. God, that's weird. It's a, it's a, it's a movie. It is a movie. I mean, when you got Alfredson saying, yeah, we had to, you know, we didn't have 15% of the script to film, but it probably still works. Like, <laughs> Um. But yeah, okay. So we talked about seven a lot. I think I we all really like this movie. Uh, oh yeah, it's still, you know, it's 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 you know, in terms of the serial killer movies of that era, for me, it's Hansel Lamb's Seven, and again, you know, yes, it's arguably inferior, but I have a very soft spot for Copycat. I still think it is a very good movie that had the bad luck to open like a month after a quote unquote game changer. Yeah. You know? Are you a fan of The Watcher with Keanu Reeves and James uh, Spader? Yes, because I, I mean, it's not good, but Keanu Reeves is very good in it. For a movie that he didn't want to do, he certainly doesn't phone it in. Uh, There's stuff in there I like. Uh, The character interaction is good. I I love that, you know, James Spader basically takes the piss out of the whole, you and I are one of the same, you know, garbage. Um. I mean, I'm not going to say it's a must-see, but I enjoyed it. 
I, I um, only think of I think of that movie because it came out the same day as The Way of the Gun. That's the way that's the way I remember The Watcher yes. existing. <laughs> uh, Nurse Betty, I think, around the same time. Nurse Betty's later. That's like I think it's like a week yeah, later, or two weeks later. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I but I like I like Nurse Betty quite a bit. That's like, yeah, that was that was a very unconventional Morgan Freeman performance at the time. And the first time I saw Chris Rock acting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like he's been funny. Uh, he he was acting in that movie. <laughs> Was Aaron Eckhart in that too? Was yeah, Aaron Eckhart's all over the place in 2000, guys. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, he gets scalped in that movie. It's very violent. He does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's why, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's one of those movies that because it's not an action film or a horror film, the everybody views it jarring. as being insanely violent. Um, it's like, like Payback or you know, Pulp Fiction or whatever. Or Joker for that matter. Uh, which wasn't nearly as violent as we'd been promised. I was very disappointed. But all the riots that have happened since because of Joker, get out of town. <laughs> okay. So we've talked about seven long enough, I think, and we're at the point where I'm getting, um, I think, <laughs> Swedish credits going on now on my screen. Um, so yeah, this has been our seven commentary, Jack. Where can people find all of your guys' work? Brandon Peters, will start with you. Uh, you can find me and my written work at weisselblue.com. You can check out my brand new podcast, Brandon Peters Show, which is at brandonpetersshow.com, iTunes, or Apple Music, or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever. And uh, follow my exploits on Instagram and Twitter uh, at uh, Brandon4KUHD. Peter Paris, where can people find more of you? I haven't written in forever, which is terrible of me. Uh, but now that I'm unemployed, uh, I guess I will be hopefully getting back into that. Uh, I'm at uh, Why So Blue. Yeah, it's Burns. Oh, dot com. Yes. <laughs> I have nothing to say for myself. You can catch me on this show when you invite me. I'm at Twitter, Yancey Jack. Milky Way Blues has not seen an update in a while, but check out what's there. Um, Facebook. I should start a blog one of these days, but, you know, we're not there yet. Wait, didn't you do, didn't you do an article for Why So Blue? I did one, but they, then I had a child. It just was just way too overwhelming. <laughs> the kid got in the way. Yes. Nine month old child. It's, it's, it's mainly because he wants to write and they're really having a battle about that. Yeah. Scott. Scott is- oh, go ahead. Uh, Forbes.com, the ticket booth. Uh, Twitter is at Scott Mendelson. Everything I do is at thecodezeek.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Darren's PS4. You can find this podcast everywhere you can find podcasts, but largely on iTunes, uh, Audio Boom, Spotify, Stitcher. Email us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all that. We got all those things going. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetersshow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.